Can we talk about the Goblin King? Yeah, we got to talk about Goblin. Oh, Mr. Uh. Ballsack himself. <laughs> oh, no. Ballsack chin. <laughs> I love that Gandalf felt the insult to injury would be to cut that thing before he cut him to kill him. I think he cuts him on the stomach, not the ball, not the chin, right? I swear that gets I think, cut. I think, I think it cuts both. I think Does he cut both? both? Okay. I don't remember the order of events, but it's definitely both. Gandalf is like, that nasty thing has to get cut. Oh, man. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 243 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss Peter Jackson's 2012 film, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Joining us this week in Bag End are hosts of the Watch, Review, Repeat podcast, Colton and Andrew. Welcome back to the show, guys. Hello. Thank you for having us. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for braving the hurricane to join us, (laughs) James and uh, Andrew. Uh, are, are brave in the, the storm surge to talk to us. Andrew's closer. So like we'll say, <laughs> I, I, I'm probably going to be fine. Everything will be okay over here. You know, we're taking the necessary precautions. And thank you for joining us for this interesting film that I, I assume all of us have an, a history with that that yeah. we'll all talk about. And, you know, I think there's a certain consensus around these films and and especially in comparison to the to the novel, which we read last week and we're able to talk a lot about, which, you know, very nostalgic for Luke and I have, have Andrew and Colton. Have either of you read the book? No, I have not. I have read it once, uh, I think 2014. So it's been a while to the point where I don't remember, you know, the specifics of it. Yeah, but you still have that frame of reference. Yes. But I think that I, I think that I would have read it after at least the first Hobbit movie came out. So I kind of. You know, I think before either Desolation or Five Armies came out, I think I would have gone back and read it. That's interesting, though, because th- that means neither of you have that nostalgia of it being a childhood favorite that that James and I both have, which I think will change a little bit. your probably your opinion on this stuff. <laughs> yeah, I have. A, yes. It's my only exposure to The <laughs> Hobbit. And uh, I don't know. We're about to talk about it. So, well, that means that you're basically comparing it more so to the Lord of the Rings trilogy then, which is kind of a, you know, can be tough because The Hobbit is a, it's more of a child's novel and, you know, comparing it to the to Lord of the Rings could be difficult. Right. Uh, I mean, I do think that the movie sort of wants you to do that, uh, which is which is one of the, I think, problems with it, which we could talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's, it, it's such an interesting watch this time for me. Such a mixed bag. There are things that I really like about this movie. And I remember being very mixed when I saw it originally. And there are other things that just really don't work. Um, And I remember this being my favorite of the three. I'll be curious to see if that holds true um, now that when when I actually watch the next two. Oh, which that actually reminds me, I should do a little bit of housekeeping. We are going to be having on two other guests to help us finish out this project. We have uh, Kate Ristow who is an author of children's novels. Um, but she's a friend of mine from Portland, and she's going to be joining us for The uh, Desolation of Smaug. And then uh, our final episode, which will be on the Battle of Five, Five Armies, we are going to be having Laura from Why the Book Wins podcast to join us for that one. And I was just on her show 
to record an episode on The Haunting of Hill House, which is going to be coming out in like mid-October. All friends coming on board this time. So right. uh, jumping back over to you guys, watch, review, repeat, Andrew Colton. I want to give you a chance to shout out your podcast and tell us all about it. You have been on before. It was cool because you came on for your podcast namesake on our podcast. So you oh, came for yeah, okay. Edge of Tomorrow, technically, was the, was the theatrical release. But um, live, die, repeat. Yeah. Um, well, we're happy to be back. Uh, it has been some time since we talked about Edge of Tomorrow, which was a blast. It's one of our favorite movies. And there's a reason that Andrew was inspired by it. And I think probably looking at the literal Blu-ray cover and seeing the live, die, repeat tagline, bigger, big, bigger than the actual title that inspired him to make it, you know, into to our podcast namesake. But um, yeah, I mean, we're uh, to, to, to quote our usual thing that we say at the beginning of our podcast, uh, it, it, Watch, Review, Repeat is a podcast where two best friends discuss the latest in film and television and then do it all over again the following episode. And that's that's what we've been doing. We started around the same time as you guys, I think 2017. And uh, we've we've been going not quite as strong, but um, but but holding pretty steady. <laughs> it's been a busy year. Uh, for sure. Um, you know, we've had a busy year this year and we've been kind of all over the place in terms of getting some stuff out there. What's your what's your episode count? I feel like they're pretty close. Uh, I think you guys have jumped us a bit. I think the last one we put out was 216, if I'm not mistaken. We covered Jordan okay. Peele's Nope. Nice. Awesome. I, I always like, you know, I don't listen to every episode, but I dip in and I like the way you describe all of the news. Uh, it seems like you really keep your finger on what's going on just in the industry. And that's a lot of stuff that I can't keep up with because I, you know, try and keep up with all the adaptation stuff, but everything that's going on outside of adaptations, I, yeah, it seems like you always know all that stuff. And if you ever want to know anything about Warner brothers, discovery, Ezra Miller, <laughs> watch review, repeat is the podcast to turn to. They have their own segment now. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I love that. You know, it's funny too. So Cole and I met actually years and years ago now working at a movie theater and he was always that person as well. Like, always had his finger on the pulse of like what movies were coming out inspired me to get more invested in that as well. So we always kind of would chat about all of that and stayed close because of that. And uh, I just saw both of you. Congratulations to both of you. You're both married yeah. this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Congrats. Thank Recently, you. Recently, I saw I saw you both in New York. So uh, that was a lot of fun. Event of the century. It was a glorious wedding. <laughs> Andrews, <laughs> awesome. was, Andrews was quite nice too. Uh, Andrew, you didn't get to a chance to give your your history with the material I want to hear. Yeah. Uh, I know you said you haven't read the book, but where were you at? Yeah, so um, Lord of the Rings changed my life. I mean, it was a monumental movie when it came out. Um, I, I saw it in theaters. It blew me away. Um, so I'm heavily staked in the franchise. It, but when Hobbit came out, uh, I think we made a trek to uh, the IMAX out in Orlando uh, to, to go watch it. I was stoked. Um, and it was a... Um, it was a mixed bag for me. Um, we were chatting recently too, and I know that you like you've played the Mordor games as well as I have. And, oh, and, right, right. You know, right. we were chatting like Rings of Power is coming out, so like you you know the franchise, like you said, you've been invested in it. I actually, um, I, I'm fin I'm finishing up on um, some a Sanderson book. Um, about to be done with the Stormlight Archive. Uh, oh, cool. At, you know, book four. Um, and so I added Lord of the Rings and the Cimmerillion. I think is what it's called to my Amazon wish list. Those, that's probably the next franchise I'll dive into after Mistborn. Uh, I think I'm going to probably fly through Mistborn. They think the the books are more digestible. I think, but um, yeah. So I mean, Lord of the Rings is something that I, I really really enjoy. Um, the only exposure was film, and uh, of course, Rings of Power now and the video game uh, Mordor um, or not Mordor. What's it called? Shadows of Mordor. Yeah. Shadows of Mordor. Yeah. I also played the the PS2 one. Uh, the two towers. That was yeah. some good shit. Oh yeah, yeah that was a good game. 
those were awesome back in the day. Colton, how about you? Yeah, for me, um, pretty similar to Andrew in the sense that I have not read um, the Lord of the Rings source material. I read The Hobbit because, to, to, to use the word digestible, it's much more digestible than the Lord of the Rings uh, uh, is as a novel. So um, it's something that's on my 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 unofficial wish list it's not on an actual wish list um anna who i'm now married to has like five different copies of lord of the rings and five different copies of the hobbit so i have a library available to me when 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 the when the moment comes um but it hasn't happened yet so so really it's on the the film side of the background where i've seen lord of the rings and the extended editions multiple times with the hobbit though um i think i've seen each film one time uh, when they came out in theaters, and I have not revisited any of them since, with the, with the obvious exception of uh, of the unex- or in a, an unexpected journey. I already forgot what the name was, um, <laughs> but uh, this was this was my first time watching it, I believe, since whenever it came out, uh, twenty twenty twelve, twenty fourteen, something like that. So so it's been a while. I had repressed memories too. <laughs> I I want to jump in real quick. You mentioned Anna, and I wanted to shout her out because we we spoke at the wedding or after the wedding, where she mentioned that she has read through The Hobbit in Latin. Yes. Which I, which I thought wow. was incredible. And she was telling me that the translation and the, the Latin version is amazing. It's just like incredible. I wanted to shout her out for that. And she, she mentioned she might write into the podcast or something. So it'd be cool to yeah. like hear her perspective on it as well. I think she will. She's she's got thoughts. She's she's the she's the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit expert in the in, in the household for sure. So um, I wanted to ask. So this is this might be opening a can of worms a little bit, Boy. but I, I, I'm curious to see. Um, I feel like on our at least on our podcast, James historically has been a bit of a defender of the prequels, uh, the Star Wars okay. prequels, <laughs> and um, just basically saying they're not as bad as people say. You know, I know that you, there's still a couple of them you're not a big fan of. They're they're not good movies. They, they I think that they get a bad rap in ways. But like, I I really hate them. I'm wondering if over the course of us covering these Hobbit films, if we can try and sort of compare them to the to the Star Wars prequels and like. Are they as bad as we remember? Is there more there to like than we remember? I think that's worth looking at, right? Because, you know, times change, stuff, you know, we change as people. And, like, looking back at it now, I'm curious to know, did, was that true for either of you? Like, did it, did anything change this time around? I, I, I find some enjoyment in the Star Wars prequels as, as a starting point. Um, I think they're bad films. I think they're poorly made. I think that there's a, the bones of a really good story within them. And I think that to to realize that story would require chucking everything out and redoing those films entirely. I don't think the same as I don't think the same is true for The Hobbit. At least as far as an unexpected journey is concerned, I think there's a lot of good bones within this film. It's just too much. It's too much in it. It's it's a little overstuffed, and I think I think that's that's its fatal flaw for me. Uh, I, we should just go ahead and get it out there. I I watched the ex- extended edition. Did everybody watch the extended edition? Uh, I did, yes. I don't know. I'm not sure what I watched, to be honest with you. How did you watch it, Andrew? Uh, I watched it on Plex. Okay. Watched it on a Plex server. Was it it over three hours long? Because if yes, then it was the extended edition. All right, I think we all watched the extended edition. Okay. What's funny is in this case, the extended edition is, like Colton informed me, it's only like 13 extra minutes on the film. Whereas some of the other extended editions will be probably more than that. And of course, The Lord of the Rings is much more than that for the extended editions. Um, So something interesting to note based on just like pacing and maybe how Colton's talking about, even the theatrical edition seems to be maybe a little overstuffed. 
Yeah, I agree. But I, I was pointing that out because that problem is just exacerbated by us adding in yes. extra scenes that were yeah. cut from the theatrical release. It's really funny that you bring up comparing Star Wars prequels to this uh, because the entire time I watched it, uh, I even texted Colton a few times. Like, <laughs> there's there's strong comparisons to be made. I mean, it was very much the same experience that I have with the Star Wars prequels to this. And to answer your question of if things changed, I think I repressed a lot of my original viewing. And so the, it felt like a very fresh experience. I did not remember. I, I, I didn't remember anything. I love that you brought this up, Luke. I can make also positive comparisons. Like if you want to, if you want to make positive comparisons, we can talk about the casting of like Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan and the casting of, of Martin Freeman as Bilbo. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to say that this movie's, that this movie works. I'm not going to try to fight that battle. It's really uphill, but I do think that like we've said, the bones are here. And when we get into some of the background, I think that like, it's just a tragedy that we didn't get what was potentially coming. Well, I'm curious, James, this time around for you, was it improved? Was it about the same? I know you own you own this this version, so I don't know if you've seen it a bunch of times. I haven't. No, no. Okay. This is this is maybe my third time seeing Unexpected Journey, and I haven't seen the other two after this. Um, more than the the original viewing in the theater. Um, you know, it, part of it has, that's changed for me is working in the industry has softened me a little. I feel as a critic, like I think I think I was a lot more harsh. Uh, to a lot of films and and especially having watched the appendices and understanding like sort of what went into this and what they were up against in this situation I think that I view it a little more gently I would say but again I think that unfortunately even with all the the amazing work that went into it as much as they really tried to make it work there's a lot going on in it that's holding it back so you know I walk away enjoying being back in Middle Earth for in a sense but also feeling like it didn't quite land what could have been one of the best, one of my favorite movies ever, you know? Like I talked about last week, when the trailer came out for this film, Unexpected Journey, I legitimately was telling people this is going to be my favorite movie I've ever seen, and uh, it, it didn't end up being that. Yeah, so I, I guess in a similar way, I, I find myself wanting to, like, roll my sleeves up and figure out, like, all right, what went wrong here? What can we fix? Like, how can we make this thing work? And and it, to me, it feels like they they tried to do too much. Like they tried to, they tried to make this like extended universe Lord of the Rings thing, where they're connecting everything together with everything that came before, and that stuff all actually works a little better now because of Rings of Power. Like I st I started caring more about some of these details than I remember caring yeah. when I originally saw this movie. The name Durin was brought up many times, and I was like, oh hey, Durin, huh? <laughs> yeah, I had a couple moments like that. Um, but overall, like there's that. And then there's also like this kind of like Lord of the Rings tone, like fairly adult, uh, serious drama. And then absolutely whimsical child stuff that's from the book, which <laughs> as we talked about, like the original Hobbit was written as a novel for children. And J.R.R. Tolkien wrote the Lord of the Rings uh, I think it was something like almost 20 years later, a little bit less, I think. And he knew that his audience from from The Hobbit had grown up. So he wanted to write a series of books that were going to appeal to them now at the age they were at the time. So going in reverse is a little different because you're taking all these people who love this, cer this certain tone and you're trying to regress it a little bit and go back to this thing. And like it's funny because I feel like the prequels also had a similar problem because those movies are aimed right at like young children. 
Until they start talking about trade federations and blockades and things like that, which are some similar problems, though, right? Like, it's they're trying to do both. And, like, I just don't think you can. Like, it's always going to feel like this weird, like, whiplash between these different tones and these different storytelling methods. And, you know, we got these songs that are so whimsical and ridiculous. And then the next scene, you got, like, a bunch of snarling orcs and someone's getting fed to the wargs. And it's pretty dark. And, and it's just it's weird to have all of this in the same movie. I couldn't help but feel like as much as Peter Jackson and Philippa and uh, Fran, I believe her name is, as much as they together created this magic in The Lord of the Rings with tons. And this is this is another example of like pre-production being so key to a film being successful. What they were able to create with Lord of the Rings was was lightning in a bottle, like no question about it. It was it hit at the perfect time. Everything happened perfectly for them. And they somehow came together after, you know, th- however long they filmed in New Zealand to to complete this like masterpiece trilogy. And then Peter Jackson wanted no part of it again. He was like, let me produce, let me be in the background and help out and start to set the groundwork for what would eventually be a Guillermo del Toro adaptation. So he's like trying to set the groundwork, bringing in all the same crew basically from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, So it's, you know, it's interesting to see how like, this is called an unexpected journey. And I think it is called that partially because Peter Jackson was like, yeah, it was an unexpected journey for me. Like I didn't expect to jump into this. Um, And we can get into more of why that happened, but I think that when you see certain aspects of the film, you can tell that they wanted to do this epic scale that they had done with Lord of the Rings. They wanted to repeat that. And then like like Luke said, expand on that and kind of connect it. And some of that connective tissue is the is the stuff that if they had just finished, followed the book more closely, I would have been more on board with um, because they start pulling from from the Silmarillion and they start expanding out like passages and short sections into entire films as we'll get to, obviously. (laughs) And and it just like it felt like a little bit of hubris, like, oh, we've done this before. We can do it again. And then it also felt like leaning really heavily on the technology of the time and saying, like, we now have the technology (sighs) to do all of this. And, uh, you know, some of those things, I think, came to play a bad part in the film, maybe kind of a cash grab too. honestly, it seems like uh, them saying, hey, let's make a bunch of money, make three of these things and, and try and recapture that magic and that that money we got from the first ones and i think we all know that it wasn't peter jackson saying let's cash grab these films and let's make three you know what i mean yeah i'm, I'm not saying it's him yeah there is a, an aspect to peter jackson who clearly loves making long uh thorough films that cover all of the source material and i think that's great for the people who want the extended cut and everything because i do love that in the original trilogy but <laughs> what we got is a little excessive and then the fact that he was also mandated it seems that there would be three films feels like a lot. Well, I'm going to mention a specific scene, but just as, as an example of what you're talking about, like in the original Lord of the Rings, your extended cut scenes are like cool scenes from the book that a lot of people really wanted, but like didn't quite fit in the t- runtime and what they wanted for the movie. Here we get like a few different scenes of Bilbo walking around Rivendell, just like looking at the waterfalls. For like a minute. It's really neat though. And I'm like, I was like, okay, that's cool, but I can see why it was cut. Like, we don't need that. <laughs> yeah. Isn't isn't technology cool though? Like, look what we can achieve at this point. And there's a little bit of that going on. This this movie feels so much of that like green screen era of, of like CGI filmmaking. And, you know, with, I think we've come back around because of films like this a little bit, but I don't know. I think every generation has it, right? Like, 
there were restrictions that were placed on certain films in like the 90s and before because they didn't have the technology to really cope. You had things like, you know, you had your Jurassic Parks that were doing the best they could with CG at the time. And then you get into like the early 2000s and you get the green screen. You, you get sort of they're having to meld the CG with practical effects. And I think we've all agreed that that kind of holds up the best. And then you get this green screen era. And I think we've now graduated from that into the virtual production era where we have to we, I, I think we'll look back at some of the virtual production that isn't done expertly and say like, oh, doesn't that look weird and wonky? I think you can already see that to some extent where some look better than others already. Yeah, totally. This idea that we're now looking back at this movie 10 years later, looking at this the CGI, which realistically is pretty good, especially for the time period. I think that there's clear moments where it's rushed. And just to nip this in the bud right away, I, I wanted to make sure everybody on the podcast knew that Azog, the, the white, the pale mm-hmm. orc, mm-hmm. was a last minute replacement as CG. It was originally planned to be practical. There's You can go look up photos of a person in a suit actually acting. And then they last minute decided to CGI over this person because Peter Jackson felt it wasn't menacing enough. And that sort of is, I think that's the thing that most people will point to with the CG in this film. I, I don't know. I didn't think he looked that bad. No. Oh, oh it pulled me yeah. totally out of it. Did it? The, as, as yeah. in particular? Yes. The the, the white okay. one with the, the hook hand. Y- yeah. Um he um yeah, it felt like uh in and I didn't know anything about the the pre production woes of this movie, but you know, we have it felt like Star Wars, it felt like a prequel. Hey, you know what? We yeah. have this character Yoda. We have a puppet that looks great. We can use him. Nah, we can make him we can make him in a computer, dude. Let's do that. That's probably a poor example because of the puppet Yoda that we got, to be fair, but I, I like the idea in principle. <laughs> yeah. It's a mixed bag. I mean, I think some of it is 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 done fairly well. I think all of the film has its sort of digital glossy sheen to it that the prequels had, uh, and I think that that makes it feel less uh, grounded and realistic than even the Lord of the Rings did. However, many years earlier it was made, um, and I don't. I think it's the same thing with the Star Wars prequels compared to the original trilogy. Is just because you have the technology doesn't mean you have to completely rely on it in such a way that it it ages more poorly. You know, like. Star Wars has a sort of timeless quality. I think the Lord of the Rings trilogy, for the most part, has a sort of timeless quality to it because of how practical a lot of it was done. And then The Hobbit is always going to kind of have this sort of less, like almost more inferior uh, sort of aesthetic to it because it just hasn't aged gracefully. Uh, gracefully. And I think I think some of it, it looks fine. I think the effects work on the whole is fine. Um, but then you have the things like Azog, the, the orc, just clearly being painted over you know, I think uh, compared to the practical orcs that share the same scene with him, you know what I mean, where they look good, and then there's this weird CG abomination that's walking around and sharing <laughs> this. You know, it's just it's just distracting. Another app comparison is going to be uh, Boss Nass. You got <laughs> Boss Nass and the and the Goblin King. Yeah. You know, it's like ah man, I, 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 yeah, I, I don't need any of this. I don't need his yeah. songs. I don't need I don't need big old Boss Nass, and I don't need it. I don't need any of it. <laughs> This is the height of like 3D CG as well. So like there were moments in the film that I felt the 3D nature of it. This was, you know, and and also the release, like to talk about that, like this was the first film released in in, uh, 48 frames per second. And that was a big marketing thing. And and I know that that ruined many people's uh, (laughs) first viewing of this film is because they went and saw it in 48 frames a second. And you have that in addition to the fact that you're wearing 3D glasses. You're, you got a lot of stuff going on with I this film. I think that film. was me, honestly, the first time I saw it. Not good. Peter Jackson <laughs> thought he was James Cameron. 
but he was wrong. <laughs> and, and like, you know, Lucas and P- Jackson, like there, there's something to be said for them pushing the medium forward, like p- the, with the technology, but it's also at a risk. I think that everyone should realize it's at a risk. And I think, I think, I think in a way that Avatar really utilized that 3D technology and apparently still does as it's now in its 19th re-release making $10 million <laughs> over the weekend, you know, like the 48 frames per second, it was really kind of out of nowhere. And I think that, it, you know, there wasn't, I don't think the world was ready for it. I don't think the world is ready for it. I think, I think nobody wants that. Yeah, it's yeah. just you know. What type of demand is there for forty-eight frames? People who like soap operas. Yeah, like if you just... like the look of a soap opera <laughs> or the news, or they they keep motion smoothing on their TVs all the time, oh, and they're like, yeah, why God. don't movies in the theaters look like this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just it just you know, I, there's the, the only thing that I can say to complement the forty-eight frames per second is I think a lot of panning shots actually really benefited from it. But it makes everything just look so much cheaper because it has that soap opera, uh, you know, quality to it. That you just your brain, your your brain just goes there. That you can't you can't stop it from happening. I can understand fight scenes benefiting a little bit, but I, our brains have been so trained to see twenty four frames per second and know that that's film and know that that's what a movie is versus like what we watch sports events or live things in. And like when you, if you have a fight scene and you want it to be seen more clearly, that's amazing. That's great. I think you should have that choreograph it so that we understand what's happening in the action. Otherwise we won't be invested. There's also something to be said for it looking hokey. Like if you have giant battlefield and there's people swinging slowly because we're seeing so much of the motion, um, I don't know, it it gets that, it it gets into that weird uncanny feeling that it doesn't feel like a movie anymore. It almost felt like a play in some ways, or a soap opera, obviously, to, to again make that comparison. So I only know a little bit about the like uh, proposed Guillermo del Toro version and the the woes that went on with this movie. So I'm definitely curious to know more about that, James. I was a little excessive here, and I think for <laughs> each of these movies, I will be because not only is the film like three hours, but then the appendices. I think I want to say at the beginning of it, Peter Jackson said that. There's like nine hours of appendices oh, for The man. Hobbit. And so I watched a significant amount of those uh, for, for this first one here. And there's a little bit of saving face going on, of course, with the film after the fact. There, and, and I think we should say, like, there are people who love these films, and that's fine. And I think that there's there's something to be said for loving this world enough. And we've we've all kind of said that. We, we were happy, or at least I have said that I'm happy. I was happy to be back. I think interesting to make the connections, to see, like, the trolls that were then referenced in The Lord of the Rings, to see Bilbo. Yeah. That's obviously continuing. Oh, man, on. when that music plays and we're in Bag End and we, see, you know, we see Bilbo again. Like, I was so, I'm like, how is this movie not great? You know, <laughs> like, it. it, it does bring you right back and i love how much of the score they use and how much of it carries carries over from lord of the rings and we mentioned last week the misty mountain yeah uh, song it so, being and that so being good. the sort of light motif of this entire trilogy here like that's again howard shore being amazing like just being like just a, a legend yeah and and taking of uh, something that we thought was an amazing fantasy song and then Obviously, it's performed well by the dwarves, but then having it recur throughout all the fight scenes in a faster, faster way and a slower way for more somber scenes. And it's amazing. It's like that, that person's obviously a master of their craft. To, to make another comparison, it's, it's almost like John Williams trying to single-handedly save the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> and Ewan. Ewan was helping too. But yes, what, what happened? What, 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 what happened here, I think, is the question. So the movie went through several stages of pre-production hell, including separate legal disputes between New Line Cinema, Sir Peter Jackson, and the Tolkien family members, which complicated production. 
When MGM moved the project forward in 2008, more complications ensued when MGM entered bankruptcy and froze production, causing director Guillermo del Toro to step down after three years of pre-production. Later, it was almost cast out of New Zealand when several unions and guilds blacklisted the project and shooting was delayed again when Peter Jackson recovered from surgery for a perforated ulcer. Now, all of this is covered in the appendices. Let me break it down a little better than just that paragraph. So, Philippa, Peter Jackson, and Fran Walsh were all together, and they were working on this project. Obviously, like they, they wanted a hand in it because they were involved so heavily in The Lord of the Rings. And Guillermo del Toro was the pick to, to direct this. And the idea being Guillermo del Toro would direct two films. He would direct two Hobbit films that would come out, and they were doing three years of pre-production leading up to this. So they didn't even have a green light for the film there was there were still in legal disputes they thought that they would be handled and they were still in the legal disputes when they started wet a workshop turned on the lights started crafting armor started crafting everything they would need production designers were creating stages were creating sets that would be used everything was in motion and then it continued to be delayed for years and at some point and everyone in the appendices you know, all these people that I've mentioned all understand why uh, Guillermo del Toro decided to step away. And it's basically because he's this visionary filmmaker who is realizing years of his life are ticking away while he's waiting to make this, when he could go make The Shape of Water, when he could go make Crimson Peak, when he could go make Nightmare Alley. And and clearly he's gone on to do those things. Pacific Rim, I think, was somewhere in this range. And when he walked, Peter Jackson didn't immediately take up the reins. He didn't want to. He again was like, I've done my journey through Middle Earth. I don't want to be in this for another three years nonstop. These people who were continuing to work, people were being casted, Agents were being contacted. There were deals being made. This movie's still not greenlit and all of this is happening. At some point, someone approaches Peter Jackson, I think a casting agent, and says, I have no leverage. I can't get any of these people to come on board. We don't have a director. We don't have anyone who can work on this film. There's nothing solid and concrete. And basically at that point, Peter Jackson saw all the work of all these people he loved from the original trilogy. Every set designer, his, you know, all these people that he worked with in New Zealand and said, all right, begrudgingly, I think I have to take the reins here and and make sure that all these people aren't screwed and do the best I can with it. And at that point, when he decided to take up the reins, there were five months until they started shooting. And there was a big emphasis made on the fact that Peter Jackson thought that Guillermo del Toro would have made an amazing Hobbit film or films. And but he's not he's not Guillermo del Toro. He cannot direct what would have been a Guillermo del Toro film. Um, I read that uh, Philip Boyens expressed regret that del Toro's version of the movie remained unmade because she, she revealed that the script was different. There were different visual elements and it resembled more of a fairy tale. She stated that significant script changes were made to Bilbo's characterization and it shifted and changed into someone who rather than being slightly younger and more innocent in the world, once had a sense of longing for adventure and has lost it and become fussy and fusty. It's a different tone for Bilbo. And I think that's something to note going forward when we talk about sort of the situations that, that Bilbo gets into. And then the, the, the way that we leave him at the end of the film versus where we left him sort of around this time period in the, in the novel. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's just a little bit about how things went about the, the dispute between new line cinema and Warner brothers supposedly was, they were refusing to pay the Tolkien estate money that was owed to them, um, which was funds from the Lord of the Rings success. And there was a two and a half year disagreement. 
which basically led to to legal discourse, I believe, and developed into that sort of thing. And then um, ultimately, MGM was kind of bankrupt through a period in there. And so it just it was it was bad. It was a bad situation. And of course, the the studio wanted this film to happen soon. And it seemed like it was going to happen with or without Peter Jackson. And he decided to jump on board. So let's keep keep all of that in mind as we move <laughs> forward. All of that. Yes. That does. That is good context because someone sort of backing into a project and, and begrudgingly taking it up and not being their passion, not being the thing that they've been wanting to do for years. This is two completely different ways to go into something. And I think that shows, unfortunately, you know, I think that, yeah, it's, it's perfunctory in a way. It's, it's just making it to, cause he feels like someone needs to make this movie. So he's going to do it. But that's, yeah, that's not the way you want to enter into something like this. I mean, we've, we've already talked about how there's three movies and I think that might be a bit, excessive and unnecessary and just this idea of Guillermo del Toro a filmmaker who I also love in his own right on making two films in his style yeah. like that sort of Pan's Labyrinth style I just can't even that that is something that will haunt me till the end of my days <laughs> that we we didn't see that yeah yeah what's that look like that's awesome that would be awesome I should say yeah I think it would have been that's a that's a real shame uh, oh this just reminds me real quick um, if anybody's curious what we would think of the animated hobbit film that came out in the 70s we are going to be covering that on our patreon uh soon uh i wanted to throw it to you too anything that you've heard about the production or anything you wanted to mention before we jump into some of the the other background and some of the plot um i i have kind of two things i think i think the first thing is just mourning what could have been obviously with with del toro's involvement anyone that's listened to our show knows that we are huge fans of guillermo del toro uh he's one of our favorite filmmakers i think he's such a creative genius behind the lens that I think that the biggest shame is that, and, and this is somewhat jumping ahead, I think to talking about the Hobbit film trilogy is it's just too samey with a lot of the Lord of the Rings. And I think that's to its detriment. And I think that Del Toro would have lended the Hobbit such a unique vision that would have really made it stand apart from the Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson film trilogy. And I think that it really, really could have benefited from that because as you guys have discussed many times now, the Hobbit, the, the book is not, like the Lord of the Rings, the novel. You know what I mean? It's such a different uh, viewpoint of the same universe, um, but stands apart because of how different it is. And I think that, I think that the the probably the the best first step I think to adapting the Hobbit would have been to keep it totally consistent with what I think the Hobbit is supposed to be. Uh, and I think Del Toro would have would have offered a vision I think that was closer to that. The only thing that I'll actually add I think in terms of just things that I know about it is because he was obviously planning two films. I would still argue The Hobbit is a film is is a book rather that could stand on its own as one two and a half three hour film, you know. And I think you could really get most of what you need to get out of the story in that span of time. Um, and I think his original vision, which then later changed, even while he was still involved before he exited the project, is that the first film was going to be a complete adaptation of The Hobbit, and then the second film would be a quote unquote bridge film uh, between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings where the, the tone and the vision would feel closer to uh, to what the Lord of the Rings film trilogy was. And then that would be the opportunity to explore, well, what, what the hell has Gandalf been up to when he, you know, when he disappears in every other scene? And that would have been the kind of time to, to figure all that stuff out. And I think that could have been really interesting. I think it would have been hard to do. You know, I think it's easier the way they did it here in the sense that, well, when Gandalf disappears from a scene, then there's another scene where you see what he's up to, you know, and that's kind of the way they structured it here. And I think that's fine. Um, but I think that's just a really interesting idea. And eventually they, they, they kind of departed from that even towards the end of Del Toro's time making the film is that they uh, they just decided, all right, well, let's just 
let's just find a clean split somewhere in the middle of this of this book and and that'll be that and then obviously later decision was made we could make it into three um but uh, the other thing that I'll, I'll say, I think, just in terms of what we did get, and, and I think that this is probably somewhat aligning with what James has said, is to, to Peter Jackson's defense, well, he didn't have to say yes. He didn't have to say yes to, to coming on board and, and trying to salvage, obviously, everything that had been done in preparation for this project. But uh, I think at the same time, you have to acknowledge that like he just, he just didn't have prep time. You know, he's, Batman, as we all know, once he has prep time, can defeat any foe. Peter Jackson did not have the adequate amount of prep time, I think, to really pull this film off. And I think you can really see, especially as the trilogy develops, it really feels like he's flying by the seat of his pants as he's making these films. And I think it's I think it's the least prevalent in this first film, and more so in the other two. Um, but but I think that that's 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 one of the biggest things is they just couldn't hold it back any further. I think if you gave him just even a little bit more time to to figure everything out and at least map it out and plan it out more uh, thoroughly than I think that his vision of The Hobbit, even if it is basically just Lord of the Rings light, I think could have been much better executed than it actually was. I mean, you bring up a good point too. Like I mentioned that he only had five months from the time that he took the helm, but to for comparison's sake, he had two to three years right. before he started on The Lord of the Rings. So we're talking about magnitudes of difference in terms of prep time. And and like you said, flying by the seat of your pants, I don't think there's many filmmakers who could have even achieved what was achieved here. Um, that's not to say that it's maybe a good thing that it was decided to, to be done this way. I, I just, I don't think anyone needs to defend Peter Jackson's legacy or anything like that. But ultimately, I think we know the kind of filmmaker he is and what he's capable of. And like what we got here was the best that they could do and you know that's a shame yeah i haven't said it but it was nice to go back to middle earth i mean it was it was very nice uh the whole the whole intro piece with uh, the shire the whole nine yards i mean the it's a strangely enjoyable film but you have to acknowledge it's it's shortcomings you know um so i think being that he had five months he did not have ample prep time and and they were also flipping the styles too, right? So exactly. five months to completely alter a film. And and just for context too, they were they were five months prepping a two hundred and sixty six day principal photography shoot because they were filming all all of them back to back to back, right? All three in a row. Oh, that's yeah. nuts! Oh, it's nuts. Um, so the best that he could do was pretty damn good. I mean, all things considered, I I, I didn't know anything about that, so I'm actually kind of floored that. Um, that it delivered uh, on so much. I want to get. I want to give him all this. All this sort of uh, credit we're giving him, but like that doesn't change the fact that there are things. There were decisions made here that you look at on the face of them and go like, "Why would you do that?" Like, and and like who who made that decision? I don't know. You know, but like there are still times where you know, in five minutes, you should be able to look at that and decide that it's not the right thing to do. <laughs> and, and I assume what you're referencing here uh, is something that we should get to. And I don't know who originally made this joke. So credit to them. I promise it wasn't me. But uh, there's there are dwarves in this film who look like dwarves. And then there's dwarves in this film who look like they fuck. And that's the joke that people say. <laughs> yeah. Hold on. Hold on. Save that talk for the sequels. <laughs> That's not what I was referring to, but I, I, I... So that that has always really, like, tickled me that, that they decided to have these, like, very non-dwarf-looking yeah. people who are meant to be these heartthrobs, where 
these normal looking dwarves couldn't be and i'm and i'm always blown away by that i'm like they could have they could have made one of these dwarves as as dwarf like as they looked attractive you know what i mean but this instead they decided to be like let's get some heartthrobs put the tiniest whisper of a mustache on them and then and then act like they're uh, act like they're sex symbols so anyway that that's just something that i feel like the, i mean the dwarves who fuck the azog obviously being the cg uh entity that he is and then and then you know a lot of this other stuff that went on i feel like are, are some of the bigger stumbling blocks and specific when i say some of this other stuff i mean the stuffing of of uh some of the original trilogy characters into this as sort of bookends and and the ways that uh they decided to lean so heavily into some of the action and sections but um if you guys are ready we can jump into the plot here and then kind of talk about everything as a whole okay so the dwarf king thor brought an era of prosperity for his kin under the lonely mountain until the arrival of the dragon smaug Destroying the nearby town of Dale, Smaug drove the dwarves out of their mountain and took their hoard of gold. Thor's grandson, Thorin, sees Thranduil and his wood elves on a nearby hillside and is dismayed when they leave rather than aid his people, resulting in Thorin's everlasting hatred of elves. In the Shire, 50-year-old Bilbo is tricked by the wizard Gandalf the Grey into hosting a dinner for Thorin and his company of dwarves. Balin, Dwalin, Feely, Keely, Dory, Nori, Ori, Goin, Gloin, Biffer, Boffer, and Bomber. Gandalf's aim is to recruit Bilbo as the company's burglar to aid them in their quest to enter the Lonely Mountain. Bilbo is unwilling to accept at first, but has a change of heart after the company leaves without him the next day. Bilbo races to join the company. So very quickly, I do want to say we were talking about prep time and all these other things. This this scene, all the stuff in the Shire, was about the only thing they had time for rehearsals with. And and is clearly the thing that they had spent the most emphasis on with the trailers, and I think a lot of the lighting and the ways that they're that, that they're depicting this, these scenes. Clearly, this ha- this first section has a lot of weight to it with the introduction of all these characters. Um, how did this strike you guys? I thought it was excellent. Uh, the 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 whole beginning of this, everything in the Shire and before the Shire, I thought was totally nailed. Me personally, I think it's the best part of the movie. Um, even even the lighthearted like uh, that's what Bilbo Baggins hates that that goofy ass mm-hmm. song, uh, you can't help but feel. I don't know, made me feel good. You know what I mean? You have this you have this company of of dwarves, and you know, and and Bilbo obviously they're all ramsacking his house and everything else. He's obviously having a, a real hard time with it. Um, but you have the you know, but he. They just have this presence about them and their own culture and everything else. It felt like a totally different, you know, just a totally different step of life coming into his home. And uh, it was enthralling. Like, I, I, I ate it up. I was, uh, I was super pumped about it. I, I was excited to go on a journey. Uh, that's the way the, the movie set for me anyways. So, Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the introduction of the dwarves, I think, is, is it really, that's where it captures the Hobbit material, I feel like, the best. Uh, you know, you're getting the whimsy of, of what the book, you know, strives to, 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 to be, uh, and then you're putting that on film. I think it's the 20 to 30 minutes that precede the introduction of the dwarves for me that feel, why is this here? Um, and I don't even mind the, the very, very main prologue, the Erebor stuff, setting up kind of the, the history of, of, of Thorin and his backstory and, and Smaug taking over you know, the mountain and, and, and all that. I think that's fine. 
it's the 10 minutes that we spend with old Bilbo and Frodo that I'm just like, I don't, we don't need any of this. If you wanted to put that in an extended edition, fine. People might eat that up because it's, you know, it's Elijah Wood coming back. It's Ian Holm coming back. Great. That's all fine. But it just unnecessarily pads the runtime and the theatrical edition. And it just takes too long for the thing to get to the point. And when it does get to the point, it's really fun. So it's just kind of just, that's, that's what holds back. I think the, the overall pacing, at least of the first part of the film um, because when it when it you know hits on the whole thing of oh this is a Hobbit film oops I forgot let me let me actually get to that bit I think it does it really really well and I, I fully agree with how Andrew describes it it's just fun you want to go you want to go on this journey you want to go on this adventure and <laughs> honestly just seeing Bilbo you know uh, uh, just, just <laughs> put that back put that back hey put that back you know he's <laughs> he's having a rough go of it but it's hilarious at the same time uh, it's it's good fun I. I I think I think it once once you get into the meat and bones of like what the Hobbit story is and and getting the company together, I think that's all good fun. Really enjoyed that. The ransacking of the of the food, uh, uh, you know, the a bunch of like dwarves just making a mess of your house, and him being too polite to say anything. Like it's all mm-hmm. right out of the book, and it works so well. Um, and then and then I think also the introduction of Thorn is really good. I think they they establish a gravity to that character. And that sense of history, and that the he fact fucks. that he is a king, that he fucks for sure. He's got a little bit uh, of a nose prosthetic, but yeah. but he can still fuck. That's for sure. Yeah, and yeah he's a badass, and um, he's got good genes. <laughs> um, and then and then that proceeds. I think one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, maybe maybe my favorite scene in the entire trilogy. I don't know, but it's that singing scene, right? Mm-hmm. The song we all mm-hmm. talked about is so good. So it's, good. It, it it moves into this like almost slow motion. But there's this, this gravity to it, and uh, you know the the smoke is curling around our different characters. Gandalf's looking off into the distant and the distance and looking pensive. All the other dwarves are looking kind of somber and sad as they're thinking about their history, but adding their voices to the song. It's so good, and it's a, you know it's very different than that that sort of whimsical song we heard about cracking the plates. Um, and yeah, this is all good stuff. And like, I remember at this point in the movie, I'm still very excited. I'm still thinking this is gonna, this is gonna be a great movie. Um, and it's, it's just such a shame that they couldn't keep this up. You know, it's like it loses its way. When we covered Fellowship of the Ring way back when I talked a lot about the magic of the filmmaking in, in the original trilogy and the way that you have to use camera trickery and, and just this amazing technology, like engineering marvels where there's these tables that are shifting to give that perspective of Gandalf being larger than like a Frodo or Bilbo in the scene. And uh, in the appendices, they're using a different technique this time. And I think this, you know, this isn't, I think it's an area where you can point to the CG sheen, but it is an area where you can point to them using the technology, not as a crutch, but as a tool that would help them uh, be more efficient is what I would say. And, and maybe do things a little easier. And so, so Gandalf is not in the, Ian McKellen was never in the, any of these scenes with these dwarves he was oh, shot wow. on a green screen. That was a replication, like a recreation of bag end. So he's in an entirely green screened environment having to react to all of these dwarves running around, the Hobbit running around. And so they're all within the scene. And what they did to achieve this is they they had two remote rigs that basically were filming the green screen and the live set all at the same time and were moving 
in uni- in unison. So they were moving uh, at the exact same speed and everything. So, but but what this leads to is Ian McKellen almost leaving the project. He was literally like, I don't <laughs> think I want to act anymore because he was in a completely green environment, having to try to figure out eye lines and react to people who weren't there, and we took the fun out of it entirely for him. And he he like up until the point that they left Bag End. He was like, he sent an email to Peter Jackson about how, like, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is working. Peter Jackson, like, almost simultaneously replied, like, sent him an email and said, I'm sorry that this is going on, but I got to tell you, the footage looks amazing. Everything's seamless. It's working really well. So they powered through it. And and I saw in the in the appendices, it's pretty funny. The production crew went on to, like, create this, like, safe haven for, for Ian McKellen. As soon as he would walk off set, he would go into this little tent that was, like, very zen. And there was, like, elf things all over the place and, and like, little, literal set. <laughs> pieces from the Lord of the Rings were placed in his tent so he could sort of like live in the environment when he wasn't in the green screen and they also made this like 60s retro tent for him to go into where he could put on like some vinyl and just like relax as like a you know the hippie he is so uh, it's just I love that those kinds of stories and those production stories and and I just think it's interesting to think of the technology and how they're using it as a tool to be to sort of shortcut something that that was really difficult in the past and again probably had to because of that short production period that short pre-production period um and but but it goes it's back to colton talking about that that cg sheen even the things some of the stuff in the shire i started noticing it right away it doesn't look as realistic it starts to look the lighting is weird like i that's one of the first things that that stuck out to me was it looked more harsh than what i was what i was experiencing in on film when they were shooting on film in in the shire in the original trilogy. And that's another thing I should note. Being someone who has worked on on fairly large sets, seeing this sort of production in the appendices doesn't feel as magical to me because I because I've lived it <laughs> as the the one from 20 years ago that I didn't get to live that seems so much more romantic and and like what you think of when you think of movie making. They were talking about how at some points they would just roll the camera constantly and just hand off media. Like they would be filling up memory cards and just rolling it for entire days. And that style of filmmaking is like shotgun. You're just shotgun blasting, hoping you get something. And it, it's not as precise. It, and, and I don't know. There's just something more artistic and deliberate about filming what you know you can get and then getting it in the can and film and running off. And that's not even an indictment of digital cinematography. It's more about just like film being deliberate about what you want to get and knowing what your vision is rather than just like getting everything sort of a very different kind of project but we were talking about the northman i think uh back when that came out and you were telling me how uh it's kind of a flex for a director to be able to say they they just had what one camera shooting yeah single cam is like definitely like the the, the like it's definitely a flex yeah so that's the, it's like a, the polar opposite of this right like ha- being very deliberate and and knowing exactly what you want versus just taking days of footage. <laughs> Jumping ahead a little bit, there's a scene in Rivendell where, you know, all the dwarves are, all the actors who play the dwarves are suffering because they have these massive packs and they have to, they actually shot three different camera angles all at the same time trying to capture different things to be more efficient, to make their day, to, you know, so like you're saying, like that sort of idea of like single cam is amazing when you have the time and you have the vision for it. But then there's also times where you just need coverage and they're like, put as many cameras up as you can and let's just get some stuff and, and make sure we can we get this movie in the can and we can put something on screen. So, yeah, uh, that's, you know, that's my whole sidestep into all of this. I, I think this this first bit is amazing in the Shire as, and the casting, I think, is great. I really would have liked to have spent less of the time 
rehashing some of the characters like Colton mentioned from the original trilogy and spend more time developing some of these dwarves who get like no screen time. There's 13 of them and there's there's like maybe five distinct ones for me. I know I, none I, of their names. Yeah. To, to be clear, I still don't know any of their uh, names. James James said all of them in order. Didn't you hear him? Yeah. It's kind yeah. of a problem in the books too. This is this is something you're going to have to deal with. The more I thought about this is uh, the more I was like this is a very difficult book to adapt. And honestly, I think the idea of doing it as more of a fairy tale makes the most sense because it's written that way. And to try and like figure out how to make 13 different dwarves work who have silly names and make them all feel like distinct characters who stand out on their own, that's a hard thing to do, especially when it's not really present in the book. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I almost thought about raising it as a concern of myself because, you know, and you touched on it, I think, with the book too. I think it's perfectly valid to say Bomber's character is that he's fat and he likes yep, food. That's it. You know? Yeah, a lot of them are reduced to a single thing, right? Like, they're that's the one with the funny hat. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think that that's a tough thing, and I think... You know, I think the question is, what do you do? It's is you either make up material, and they did a lot of that already, and we know how that worked out, or you you excise characters almost even. You know, if you want to try to give them personalities, or you know, you make them sexy as hell, and you know, they're dwarves <laughs> that fuck. You know, it's. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's a tough thing. So I almost don't. I, it's hard for me to criticize it because I think that that's something that's really just prevalent in the source material from the, from the get go, but. You know, you can sometimes improve upon the source material if you if you are yeah. you know ready to do so. I think one of the problems here is because the Tolkien stuff is so uh, you know I think I think it's like sacrilegious to to try to mess with things too too much, right? Like if you do that, then you really risk pissing a lot of people off, and that's really not a road that I think a lot of filmmakers and certainly not someone like Peter Jackson would would like to do. Someone like Del Toro probably would have done it and gotten away with it because that's the kind of filmmaker that he is. He's going to respect his source material while still adapting it and making the the changes that he thinks will be better for the story. So, yeah. and you're right. I mean, truthfully, all the time in, in adaptations, characters get combined. Stuff stuff like that happens, right? And but when you're talking about Tolkien, absolutely, there's going to be a lot of angry fans out there as soon as you you know. Well, and it's also so important that he's the lucky number 14. So, like, mm. I, I can see okay. that, like, it's it's just a really hard thing to adjust. And, again, it's one of many challenges, I think, that this book presents that maybe on first blush you don't realize. But the more you start thinking about it, you're like, this could be a tough thing to adapt. I mean, all those songs, like, what do you do with all the songs? And you can make the film into a musical, uh, which it, it, it the, the extended edition sort of is. Because I think the theatrical thing cuts two of the songs. I think we lose... I think we lose the one in Rivendell, and I think we lose the one towards the end with the Goblin King, if I'm not mistaken. I realize I'm jumping ahead. Is it just is it just the second one? Because I think one of them was definitely in the theatrical. The first Goblin King song, I think, was in Is there, it? Right? Okay. All right. So I, I'm just... It's a musical. Extended edition is a musical. I'm just putting it out there. I do think that we could have lost... The, we could have cut the Frodo portion out of this beginning and just run through, like, who's potentially going to be in this company. You know, out of the people that are left... These are like this guy's a toy maker. This guy's a cook. This guy's this. You know what I mean? And these are the people that are loyal to the king. You know, uh, I think you could have had a. It could have been like a two minute segment. That requires you to make a decision about what you're doing, though. And that, that, that was often my my <laughs> frustration. Is it felt like yeah. they didn't decide how they wanted to approach it. They just tried to do all of it. And yeah. it's like you just can't do that. You have to pick pick a lane. Decide what you're gonna do. I think there's so much of Peter Jackson that wants to be like a Tolkien historian in, in his filmmaking and he wants to have every scene on film and we've seen that with the appendices to an extent and he just couldn't get away from it. And I think 
like a keen eye who's willing to stand up. And Lucas could have dealt with this in the prequels as well. Like someone to say, this no, this can no. go, this can go, <laughs> this can go. Yeah, say no. <laughs> this can go. And, and I, I, you get a much tighter film here. And, and it's one that I think people don't w- would remember more fondly. You know, I, I guess when we're talking about that, that Erebor stuff, there is things I liked there that I haven't touched on as much. Um, I thought it was smart to introduce Smog early and to show him in a way that shows how dangerous he is as a villain, but also you don't get too much to where you still preserve a bit of that mystery all the way into the next movie, honestly, where we feel like we haven't got a good look at Smog yet and we're interested to see that. Um, so I like that and... and uh, some of that stuff with the dwarves mining and showing their city, there's a lot of spectacle there. And I know that that's something that, you know, I feel like Peter Jackson loves to do and he feels like is a, is a must. Um, so that's all good. Um, even if it does kind of add a little bit of runtime, I almost grade these movies on a different, uh, curve though, because I know that they're going to be these massive overstuffed things. The, the idea of a curve is cool to talk about too, right? So I wanted to get your guys' take on these films being quote-unquote good, quote-unquote bad. Are we comparing them to The Lord of the Rings? Are we comparing them to other fantasy of the time? Are we comparing them as their own films? Like if you were to see them in a vacuum, it's impossible not to care, compare them to Lord of the Rings, obviously. But if you were to try your best to remove yourself from that, do you think that if you saw this in a vacuum, you would you would be excited to have seen a J.R.R. Tolkien adaptation or is this something that feels offensive to you i compare this movie to star wars prequels obviously you have the the comparison to lord of the rings right um that's a that's a tall bar to to set um much in the same way that the original star wars films are tall bars to set um but if we're comparing prequels i found myself entering it comparing it to episode one uh, and if it's compared to episode one, I think that specifically, you know, like the first third of the film or however you have it split up, um, the, the the beginning portion of this film is far beyond episode one. So uh, it, it's enjoyable. I'm excited to enter it. I know what's happening. Um, and I think I think on its own, I think the beginning portion of this film is 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 very, very, very solid. I think the foundation is set for a good film. Um, for an exceptional film, I'll say that. There's a little bit about Frodo, but hey, it's fanfare, you know. Could we have expanded on the dwarves? Yeah, definitely. But perhaps we get a chance to do that later on in the film with different interactions and stuff like that. So compared to the only other trilogy I know to compare it to would would be star wars i think it's i think it's exceptional in the beginning yeah better better than phantom menace for sure i rewatched i, re- I tried to rewatch that recently i could not get through it because i found it so <laughs> it's awful. rough this is pod racing in terms of uh fantasy of the time like just comparing this to fantasy films where where do you stand on this like do you are you happy that this exists you have a lot of really good stuff in this first first this first hour first whatever you want to chunk first act however you want to classify it and i think the stuff that i've complained about already is stuff that's fine. It's just unnecessary. It doesn't need to be there. It doesn't add anything to the story, but at the same time, it's not actively bad. Whereas there are parts of this film and certainly parts of the other two films, not to, not to jump episodes ahead that are actively bad. Um, this, this, this first bit of it really doesn't have any of that. And that's, that's really, really enjoyable. Um, you know, when I'm coming into this film around the time this, this movie comes out, Lord, the Lord of the Rings is my reference point for, 
for fantasy films and, and probably the same for Andrew, I would guess. I mean, I don't really, I mean, at this, at this time, I, maybe we have one season of Game of Thrones to bring up that show. I'm so sorry. Oh yeah. That you know, been, yeah. um, but for the most part, I mean, that's, that's so different too. You know, that's so much more grounded, so much more dramatic, I think, you know, compared to the, the really, really uh, more overtly fantastical elements that are, that are a huge part of the Lord of the Rings and, 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 and all the stuff that Tolkien has made. We had some Harry Potter films, right, around the that's same true. time? That's true. That's a good point. So, yeah. so I'm curious to know, James, you, you're proposing this question, so I feel like you got to have an opinion on it, right? Yeah. Like, Yeah, in comparison to what we had at the time period, yeah. which like I, I would argue that this like early, like late 2000s into the early 10s, 2010s, is like is where this sort this all became much more with the rise of your Marvel movies and the rise of all these other things. This is when like nerd culture became extremely popular. And I think that with The Hobbit existing as it does, I was so excited at the time, even if it was a lesser Hobbit than than what I wanted, I was still excited that it existed. And I and, and specifically this one, an unexpected journey, wasn't offensive to me enough to to make me not think that yeah. they could take a step in the right direction and improve as these movies go on. Yes. Which was hope you know, wishful thinking, but that's where I was at. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I think that's almost my literal reaction when I came out of this first movie was basically that was solid. I can't you know, I think the next two are gonna be better. Yeah. The rest obviously right. is history, but you know it, it. I think that it had the building blocks, you know, to 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 set up for another successful franchise. And you know, I I we we could talk all day about you know whether it still needed to be a true Lord of the Rings prequel or not. But at the same time, I think even accepting the vision that Peter Jackson set out to make and making a you know a more epic version of the Hobbit with three films, you know, whatever, it 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 could have worked. And, and I think that it just kind of just ran out of steam. The, the rails fell off, uh, you know, as, as it went on, you know, I think so. Well, there, there's an interesting thing. Like you're talking about, James, how they had more time to focus on this early part. And that reminds me of a lot of writing that I'll read from people where they've revised the first five or ten chapters of their novel a thousand times. And yeah, I mean, this is true in my novel <laughs> I'm writing right now, because um, you—that's you, like you go back to the start and you fiddle with it. You know, it's the most important part. It's the thing that people are going to read first. So you got to hook them. And to me, that's like apparent here a little bit. Unfortunately, is that they spent a lot of time trying to get this this beginning piece to work, and I think they did. Um, but that also means that what came later was maybe a bit neglected. Traveling onward, the company is captured by three trolls. Bilbo stalls the trolls from eating them until dawn, and Gandalf exposes the trolls to sunlight, turning them to stone. The company locates the trolls' cave and finds treasure and elven blades. Thorin and Gandalf each take an elf-made blade, Orchrist and Glamdring, respectively. Gandalf also finds an elven dagger, which he gives to Bilbo. The wizard Radagast the Brown finds Gandalf and the company and recounts an encounter at Dol Guldur with the necromancer, a sorcerer who has been corrupting Greenwood with dark magic. Chased by orcs, Gandalf leads the company through a hidden passage to Rivendell. There, Lord Elrond discloses a hidden indication of a secret door on the company's map of the Lonely Mountain, which will be visible only on Durin's day. Gandalf later approaches the White Council, consisting of Elrond, Galadriel, Saruman the White, and presents a Morgul blade, a weapon of the Witch King of Angmar, which Radagast obtained from Dol Guldur as a sign that the necromancer is linked to an eventual return of Sauron. While Saruman presses concern to the more present matter of the dwarves' quest, 
requesting that Gandalf put an end to it, Gandalf secretly reveals to Galadriel he had anticipated this and had the dwarves move forward without him. So this whole section, other than the dwarves and the the dwarves and the trolls and Bilbo in the beginning, added. Let's let's talk about that. <laughs> I'm glad you're reading these names and not me. I would, <laughs> there, was a, there was a moment where I'm just like, oh my god! Can you imagine just trying to say this paragraph to someone who has no context for any of this? You guys ever heard of Dolgoldor? <laughs> yeah. Where to be even begin? Let's start with the good. Start with the trolls, right? Yeah, the trolls are good. Yeah. The trolls were pretty good. They were funny. That that scene. Straight adaptation right there, basically. Straight out of the book. It's really, yeah, it's good stuff. Um, You know, Bilbo being clever. Whenever we see Bilbo being clever and like finding some inner bravery he didn't know he had, I love, I eat that stuff up. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's the meat and potatoes of his story. Until we get to the end of the film, I feel like it goes too far, but we'll, I'll touch back in on that. Okay. Fair enough. I find his uh, I found I find Bilbo's bravery to be inspiring in this it, at this point. You know what I mean? He's constantly somebody that that is reluctant to do anything, but then when it's called upon him, he 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 does it. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I I think he's a I think he's a good hero at this point. Uh, it's somebody that I don't know. I think it's a I think it's a well fleshed out character uh, at this point. My only my only thing about Bilbo is that I th- I feel like for the si- the sake of an arc in a single film, which is what's difficult about splitting this into three, is that he progresses too quickly and he becomes a hero sort of by the end. He's he is kind of full blown hero by the end of this movie. You're right. Which which kind of pl- like messes with our obviously our yeah. Where does he have to go perception from of now where he goes from, in, the, exactly. yeah, in the following movies? That's true. That's why I. It's why at this point. Um, <laughs> that's why, the, you know, that's why yeah. I put that plug in there. Um, I think the trolls are, uh, I think the trolls are entertaining. I think they're fun. I, uh, it's funny that you guys called out, uh, the Rivendell scenes with like Bilbo walking around, like looking at everything. Um, I, it, as funny as it is when you call it out like that, I, I find my, I, I laugh about it. Uh, I actually, I, I kind of enjoyed those moments. Um, I enjoyed those moments of of Bilbo relishing home. Like he just, you know, he's just a peaceful he's a peaceful creature. He doesn't, you know, he he finds himself on this adventure, but he's he's thinking of home. Uh I thought they were thought invoking. I thought they I think they really fleshed out the character more. I I also think that that's you enjoying and and me as well because I agree with you. There there's a part of me that really likes that. It's enjoying the world, right? We're enjoying yeah. Tolkien's creation. We're enjoying Rivendell because we don't get that's to spend right. a ton of time there throughout all of these films. And so any chance we get to see that, I think is is as much as it's funny that he's sort of just like for the sake of a pacing pacing of a film. It's not great to have a character wandering around, but for the the person who loves Lord of the Rings in me, I love seeing this stuff. I'm like, wow, you know, that's that's amazing elven architecture. I paused the movie. I paused the movie. I said, hey, Sarah, Sarah being my wife. Hey, Sarah, check out Rivendale. Look at it. It's awesome. Look at it. Look how beautiful it is. And she's, exactly. She yeah. says, yeah, that's cool. I'm like, oh, whatever. <laughs> I, I keep playing it, you know, uh, but Rivendale is beautiful. I, I mean, I agree. Like, I think Bilbo is... This is him. This is the moment paying off of like what he wanted in an adventure. He wanted to see something like this that he cannot see at home. And like he still, yeah, he still wants to go home, but he's like, wow, this is really nice. This is something that exists in the world that I would have never seen if I hadn't mustered the courage to leave my house. 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I like this moment, honestly. It's not, and I kind of jokingly poked fun at it earlier, but I think it is also a question of, you know, does it fit in this movie? Probably not. Could it have fit if you had changed this into maybe like a six-part TV series or something? Yeah, sure. You might have oh, you might have time for yeah, this. Perfect. You know, but in a movie, unfortunately, I do think this is a scene that probably needs to go or at least be slimmed down. Maybe we get one moment of him looking at a particularly powerful piece of imagery. We don't need three or four. Um, there's there's ways you can chop this down and still get the message across. I think. I want to jump to a character that I do have problems with, um, and that's Radagast the Brown. I was going to say, does this character um, have bird shit on his face? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's so off-putting. Why? Why do that? What a missed opportunity to have a really interesting, cool character, and instead you go with this. And I, I, I don't understand it. I mean, he has moments that are okay, I guess, but for the most part, he's he's so ridiculous. He's covered in bird shit. You know, he, he keeps crossing his eyes repeatedly. He makes Gandalf worse. In the scenes he's in with Gandalf, he makes Gandalf worse as a character. Like, it's it's bad. I mean, he there's a little bit of... Gandalf has a little bit of that ridiculous, weird sort of thing to him. And then they took that and they were like, let's let's do that again, but double it or triple 11. it. Exactly. Turn it up to 11. And, and I, I get it to, to make it this weird, eccentric character, but... Being a Tolkien fan, like I always th- wondered what another wizard would be like in Middle Earth, and this being the payoff was just a little. Yeah, we finally get to see another of these wizards. There's only five of them, and yeah. one's Saruman and one's Gandalf, and you're like, hell yeah! And then you see Radagast, and this is Radagast. <laughs> yeah, right. you don't see. Do you see Radagast in the Hobbit? No, he's not in the Hobbit. He's mentioned. His his name is mentioned, but yeah. that's about it. Well, do they mention him having bird shit on his face? <laughs> Surprisingly, no. <laughs> Radagrest the brown with the bird shit on his face. <laughs> covered, in, covered in bird shit. <laughs> it doesn't have a rag on him, so he just leaves it on there. Yeah, very to- Tolkien, though. It was very poetic. Well, it was like the flowing bird shit. I think... Uh, I think I think to develop the commentary on Radagast as a character, I think Andrew actually made a comparison to a certain Star Wars prequel character. Oh, uh, is this the yeah. Jar Jar? That's right. Yeah, he's the, he, I'm glad. I'm glad everybody gets it. I'm glad he wasn't in every scene. Then at least that's true. He, he his his exposure in this film is relatively minimal. Yeah. But by God, when he's on screen, it's 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 uh it's it's hard to watch. So this this kind of gets into something else that that was, I don't know. It, I understand that there's a there's a an instinct to put action in a film for for maybe geared towards children, but there were scenes of Radagast intensely riding his rabbits. I thought that looked ridiculous every time it happened. And there's that that's just like one of many scenes that that I'll, you know, I'll pick on this one, but that's one of many scenes where I felt like these are so technically difficult to pull off in a film, like these big fight scenes and these big like um you know, weird juggling plate scenes and I I like the ones in in the Shire. That's that's not necessarily what I'm talking about, but just that excessiveness, that that re, that that decision to give us more action, to give us something to keep oh, us invested. I can think of so one more... with the, in the goblin hideout, hideaway that really let, stands out in that regard. Though that's such a weird instinct, and and I don't know. I think there's something here going on where it's like we shot it, we should put it in the film, and that's also adding to the bloat of this of this runtime and of the pacing. Um, but yeah, I don't really understand making these scenes so action-packed when Radagast is just going to a location. Like, show him for a second riding off on his on his rabbit scooter, his sleigh of rabbits. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
and cut to when where he gets the location and like we don't need the rest of it. Also, he just doesn't need to be a fucking joke. Like let this guy be interesting and like he's one of the Maiar, like he's an important figure in Middle Earth even if he is considered strange like I don't know if anybody's played D&D like they know how cool a druid type character can be someone who's really at one with nature like you could show him being kind of feral but he doesn't have to be a joke and they made him into a joke and it just it it just doesn't work um and again it's like them not knowing what they're doing because the reason that they have him in there in the first place is to tie it in with Sauron and the overarching mythos of Lord of the Rings which is a very serious mythos, and yet you're using this character to do it? Like, it just it doesn't make any sense to me, and I don't know why they made that yeah. decision. I think there's a bit of playfulness in the Tolkien, like, sort of overarching mythos, for sure, but the, the to take a character like this, because you know what I think would have made up for this is if he had a scene where he did something, like, the scene where he saves the, the animals wasn't enough for me. He needs to have done a feat that was it's impressive he did enough. cross-eyed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> him bringing him like curing that one thing was pretty cool, but he had to do it in a way that made it seem ridiculous. Like give him a feat that was like legitimately cool, and and that made people like uh, see him as an actual powerhouse in on because he clearly is on on Middle Earth. Should He's be. one of the most powerful people, and and so yeah, I, I just think like they didn't have that redemption for him where they just made him a joke the whole time. Yeah, um, so that also ties into the the meeting with Galadriel at Rivendell and the then showing of the sword and Saruman shows up, which is, you know, almost like a cameo. And I thought it was weird because Gandalf already seemed to have this like animosity between him and Saruman, where I almost would have liked to see what their relationship was like before Saruman got sort of corrupted, corrupted by, by the ring and by Sauron later. Like I wanted to see a is different he not, version of Is he not corrupted that. at this point? No, I don't think so. I think so. they're laying the laying the groundwork of saying like he seems like he's like interested in in considering the dark arts. Yeah, well, he, I don't know. He's, he's, he was he's very so dismissive. openly dismissive of everything. Exactly. It almost felt like he's already like I'm in league with the necromancer at this point. Yeah, it's very obvious that he's that he I is. I thought like, he was. I thought I thought it was established that he that he's in league with him. Maybe I I I thought that that hadn't happened yet. Is my understanding that that was a later development. I guess I'm not sure. But it was just a little heavy-handed to me here. It was like, how can they not see this? Um, I, I feel like Sar- Saruman is a little more subtle here. Shout out to Christopher Lee, obviously. Indian Holm, legendary film actors, and, and then just being brought back for glorified cameos. I want to say something about Gladriel. Uh, maybe it's because of... Uh, I think it's because of Kate Blanchett. I got goosebumps when I saw Galadriel. Mm-hmm. Um, just her presence... She's really an elf in real life. <laughs> She's really, yeah, that's it's about the way. Perfect casting. That's the way I feel about it. Uh, you know, we, we, we see her in the rings of power, uh, but, and maybe that's because, maybe that's why I'm drawn to her. I don't know, but Kate Blanchett encompasses that character in the same way that, uh, in, in the same way Gandalf's in, you know, just, there are people that you associate with, with these characters uh, because of Lord of the Rings. And, when she shows up and she's speaking in his mind and all that stuff, she's just, oh, man, it's so good. She's so regal and mysterious and powerful. Like, the, and her interaction and relationship with Elrond and with Gandalf, like, that was worth the price of admission for me, like, to see Cate Blanchett return as Galadriel as this didn't happen in the book, obviously, the, none of this whole scene. Yeah, I was going to say, my, 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 
the way I'll disagree with it is that I remember when I saw this going like, this isn't in The Hobbit. Why is it here? And and it's that interconnective tissue stuff that like I'm a little bit more interested in now having seen Rings of Power. I think it sets me up to be more interested in the lore and the way this all plays together. And Galadriel is this figure who's been around for like thousands and thousands of years. I'm more interested in that now. But I remember when I saw this movie the first time going like, I don't need this, this scene at all. I want to focus on the actual story of The Hobbit. I- Oh, see, I had no idea. I almost feel like if we just had this scene with the council and then cut away and never saw anything else with this council and sort of heard at the end of the journey that something went on with, you know, them handling the necromancer, just to have that set up, I would have been fine with it. But knowing sort of where we're going with it is it's a lot, obviously, like you're adding a lot. But I'd rather have these characters return for sort of cameo scenes than Ian Holm and and Elijah Wood. Well, it's, it's part of the problem of like you're distracting from the main story of the Hobbit and it makes the main story of the Hobbit seem less important. It seems like a B plot yeah. because we know how important the one ring story is and that we, we keep feeling like that's the real story. We don't. And that makes like us care less about the lonely mountain and smog and all of that. Like it just doesn't seem as important. This, I agree. I mean, ultimately if, if you're that, that eagle eyed editor, that's trying to cut this down and make it like you more, more faithful and, and what people are looking for, you cut all of this. And it's it's great for an extended cut or whatever, but like put it in the extended cut. I agree. Do that. Yeah. If you boil it down to what we got in the in the Hobbit novel, I think that this would be for one, it would have a very brief runtime that people would find very consumable to use a, a term that was used earlier. It, it, there's something to be said for that because it doesn't overstay its welcome, you know, and people are they want more like leave people wanting more instead of giving them excess. Totally agree. I think that. Having the stuff in here, it's cool. It fleshes out the world. But at at, at the end of the day, I, I stand by kind of the stuff that I said about the, the Frodo stuff is it's unnecessary and you really just don't need it. And I and I think, Luke, you really, you really hit it on the head. It does take away from, well, why do we care? Why do we care about this story? If if all if if you keep perpetually reminding us, remember that other thing where it's way more important and more, you know, we, you know, it's it's it, it's all in service of this other thing. And I think that just fundamentally treating the prequel, you know, uh, the Hobbit as a prequel doesn't really respect the material in the way that it should, should be. That's exactly it really. And truly that, I mean, you hit the nail right on the head because I personally, as somebody that's never read the Hobbit, I can give two shits about smog. I like, I, you know what I mean? It's all about Lord of the Rings. Uh, so whenever you have, and maybe that's deliberate, maybe they deliberately did that you know, to call everybody back to Lord of the Rings. I don't know. Well, I think it's important to remember that Tolkien wrote The Hobbit first, you know, long time before he wrote The Lord of the Rings. So when he wrote it, it was the story. He wrote The Hobbit first? Oh, yeah. Like 15, 15 wow. plus years before he wrote The Lord of the Rings. And in fact, he went back and and edited parts of it and edited like uh, uh, Riddles in the Dark, revised it to make it line up with Lord of the Rings better uh, at, at a later point in time. So yeah, like it's very different to have it have it as a prequel versus like have it be the first introduction to, to Middle Earth, which, which is what it actually was. So did he write Lord of the Rings while he was in the in world in, while he was in war, or did he write The Hobbit while he was no. in war? So he fought in World War One, which was in like the early 1900s, so like 1920ish. I, I don't know the exact years. And then uh, he wrote The Hobbit in the 30s, and then he and then he wrote The Lord of the Rings in the 50s, which would have been. Post World War Two, at that point, yeah. But he didn't fight in World War Two. He was a professor at the yeah. time and stuff. Yeah. You mentioned riddles in the dark, so I think it's time that we we must talk about it. Um, let me get to this next section here. 
The company journeys into the Misty Mountains, where they find themselves amid a colossal battle between stone giants. They take refuge in a cave and are captured by goblins, who take them to their leader, the Great Goblin. Bilbo becomes separated from the dwarves and falls into a crevice, where he encounters Gollum, who unknowingly drops a golden ring. Pocketing the ring, Bilbo finds himself confronted by Gollum. They play a riddle game, wagering that Bilbo will be shown the way out if he wins or eaten by Gollum if he loses. Bilbo eventually wins by asking Gollum what he has in his pocket. Noticing his ring is lost, Gollum realizes that Bilbo possesses it and chases him. Bilbo discovers that the ring grants him invisibility, but when he has a chance to kill Gollum, Bilbo spares his life out of pity and escapes when Gollum shouts his hatred towards the hobbit Baggins. Meanwhile, the Great Goblin reveals to the dwarves that Azog, an orc warchief who killed Thror and lost his forearm to Thorin in battle outside the dwarven kingdom of Moria, has placed a bounty on Thorin's head. Gandalf arrives and leads the dwarves in an escape, killing the Great Goblin. Bilbo exits the mountain and rejoins the company, keeping his newly obtained ring secret. The company is ambushed by Azog and, hunt and his hunting party and takes refuge in trees. Thorin charges at Azog, who overpowers and severely injures him with his wark. Bilbo saves Thorin from the orcs and challenges Azog, just as the company is rescued by eagles summoned by Gandalf. They escape to the safety of the Karak, where Gandalf revives Thorin, who renounces his previous disdain for Bilbo after being saved by him. They see the lonely mountain in the distance where the sleeping Smaug is awoken by a thrush knocking a snail against the throne. A uh, couple of these big things that uh, I feel are big changes without maybe the filmmakers realizing. I'm sure that they realize, but maybe audiences not keying in super closely on these. The first one is Gollum dropping the ring and Bilbo seeing that happen when he finds the ring changes that fundamentally. And we can talk about that. The other being Gandalf summoning the eagles. And, and we can talk about that as well. But in, in, the, in the book, we made a big point of saying that the eagles don't intervene unless nature is being uh, accosted or being sort of uh, corrupted. So uh, let's start from the stone giants. What do we think about all of this section? Didn't like the stone giants. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know it's in the book, honestly, but this is one of the times where if you're going for the more serious tone, you cut this out. Um, I, I don't know. or you, it just They spend too much time on it. It was a long scene. The riding around on the legs and the jumping from place to place. It just it, it was too much, and, and it went on for too long. Again, sort of added material was kind of talked about. But for it to go on that long and to make it this big action set piece sequence adds a lot of runtime. I mean, you cut that it's 10 minutes at least. And then it's also sort of not it. Nothing comes of it. It's not like somebody died. It's not like something. It's a fake out death of half the dwarves that we know isn't going to happen. Yeah, the stakes weren't really there. Just more things that are unnecessary. <laughs> but it, something that's funny is uh, I was watching. I was actually watching this last night, and um, and and Anna, who, as I mentioned, is is very much on the up and up with with all the Tolkien stuff. She would occasionally pop in and add commentary about how much she, you know, disliked certain things about the adaptation. And this was one of those things where she's just like, "Why are th the way she put it is apparently they're playing a game in the book. I don't specifically remember it. So she's, you know, it's turning something that wasn't a huge deal into this ten minute action set piece for no apparent reason right you know it's just like why also something more whimsical right yeah so it, it, the idea is that it's like a saying or something like oh it's not a thunderstorm it's just stone giants playing a game of catch 
and in because we're put, we're in this like whimsical fairy tale space, they actually see the stone giants playing this game or whatever, and like that explains why there's this thunder and. But then they take it and they make it into this in the movie. Yeah, so. and it's 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 one of the seven examples in this movie of how much Peter Jackson loves decapitating people, uh, because <laughs> yeah. because it gets it gets pretty brutal for a while there. And and I think, well, I don't really have anything else to say on it. I don't want to jump ahead unless Andrew has, has wants to offer a staunch defense of of the stone giants here. <laughs> I have no staunch defense of the stone giants. It just reminded me of uh, there's a. There's a monster, and I, I was trying to look it up, but I can't look it up in time. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, in the Sanderson books, where Odium, they, they summon like these giant rock monsters, uh, for lack of a better word. I can't, I can't remember what they're called. It's like Thunder something. I can't remember it right now, but it's in, it's in Dalinar's like, Visions of the Past. I know you're yes. Yeah. yeah. And they're, they're the same thing, pretty much. <laughs> they, they look like that, I think. Uh, with, with glowing red eyes. Wildly unnecessary. Everybody gets to their path. I mean, they could have saved so much money on their budget by cutting this out and just putting that budget towards the 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 hook the hook arm guy. I can't remember his name. Azog, yeah. Yeah. They could have they could have spent the money towards Azog. They need something to drive them into the cave, so just have it be bad weather or I don't know, just cut it down a ton. Or it could be just the fact that there's these giant things throwing shit at each other, you know, without it being a huge battle sequence, you know, yeah. It was trying, to me it felt like they were trying to recapture some of that, like, uh, Moria stuff from the the original film where where the, the stairs are falling into each other and they're jumping from stair to stair and... That was like an interesting one-off in those movies, but like I don't want that to be the you know like I don't want that to be a set piece that we're getting in every movie, and it kind of becomes that going forward. Unfortunately, that we get something like this. We get into the caves, and then this is the first time I think that we see Sting glow, and I want to know how these swords work and how the glowing works because Gandalf says it's because it's of elvish make. But the other two swords are supposed to be of elvish make as well. Why don't they ever glow, or at least we don't ever see them glow? And do they only glow for goblins and not orcs? I was unclear it's, on that. It's for both goblins and orcs. I thought it was for both too, but we definitely yeah. see Sting around the orcs later and they're, it's not glowing. Is that true? Really? Yes. <laughs> oh, I don't remember that. It's definitely supposed to be both, uh, especially in the book. It's said that it's both. The only thing that I could sort of in my head canon of this interpret was that Sting is like a dagger to a man or an elf or anyone else. And so, like, maybe, like, your full-size sword doesn't need to be a warning, just your dagger that you could pull out and check uh, be sort oh. of for danger. But it's not that, that that that's clearly not in the text or anything. Yeah, that's just my that's head. Some good defense right there, dude. That's pulling it out. <laughs> yeah. I thought, it was, I, I like, even my memory of it was that this was something unique to Sting, but I guess it's not. I don't know. It seems I'm like sure. Sting's the only one we ever see do it. When Frodo has Sting in the Lord of the Rings, it glows blue for orcs. So it's definitely both. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't glow blue for orcs in this movie. It only glows blue for goblins. Weird. All right. Anyway, so uh, the goblins get the party and, and Bilbo is separated. There was a moment right before he falls where he fights this one goblin. And it, he actually, to me, showed a little more sword skill than I would have liked. 
he's like deflecting blows and stuff. And then later we see him with with Gollum, and he's just like pointing it at him and like swatting it at him with it. And I thought that was a lot more appropriate, especially when Gandalf goes about saying like, "I hope you never have to use it" and all this other stuff. Like, don't don't have him use the sword unless like absolutely necessary, and have him look like bumbling when he does. Yeah, he looked too good with it for the very first time he drew, he drew it, in my opinion. Like, you didn't need that. Just immediately have him fall off or whatever. Like, you don't need to have him cha- tra- trading blows like he does. But you want to talk riddles in the dark? Yeah. So, th- I mean, this scene's great. I mean, Andy Circus comes back, and we see him as Gollum, and I think he's, it's pretty awesome. Like, this is a standout moment for me. It's, you know, one of the most memorable best scenes in the, in the book, I think. And uh, it plays out mostly the same here, although you were mentioning some small differences, James. I, there's definitely some small differences, uh, obviously, with the the way that Gollum like actively attacks a, a goblin, and we see the 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 ring fall. So Bilbo knows that it's Gollum's ring, versus when he finds it in the book, he's just sort of fumbling around it's in the dark and feels it, yeah. something, picks it up, has no idea that it's Gollum's. And I think that changes the relationship of what Bilbo's doing in the scene by keeping it a secret from Gollum. Um, and then uh, I did want to mention this sequence supposedly with Andy Serkis and Martin Freeman and just their interaction and everything that plays out in this whole sequence was filmed in complete takes. So they would do an entire run of the entire thing and they would cut around obviously different takes and everything like that, but they would, they would almost use it like a stage play. And this was partially because Peter Jackson wanted Martin Freeman to really settle into the role of Bilbo. I think this was somewhat early on in the production. So like settle into Bilbo, understand how he would react in these situations, which would inform his later performance and I think what a great time to really like hash it out between the actors and like have a scene play out. And uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's everything I wanted this scene to be. I think there's nothing that I can say that's, that's necessarily bad about it. The set design looks great. It looks exactly how I always imagined it. Martin Freeman is like so funny and, and charming and he's just great as Bilbo. And then Andy Serkis is like, I mean, I don't think there's anything you can say about Andy Serkis's Gollum that would be negative. I, I enjoyed the entire interaction. I mean, it's a great interaction between the characters, and it really expands the way they think. Uh, expands Gollum in a big way. You, I mean, it's a good it's a good introduction to him. If this is your first introduction to him, um, I think it I think it really sets the bar high for these two characters. I think that the the ring, like the fact that um, Bilbo is such a innocent kind of character. I think that him stealing the ring after it falls out of his pocket kind of speaks volumes about the power of the ring. Uh, and that's the way that I took it, right? It takes this innocent character and it, and it drives him to theft and it drives him to lie and it drives him to be, you know, just in a, in a way that we haven't seen Bilbo act before. Uh, the, 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 the ring drives him to act that way. Uh, and that's kind of the way that I took it. Sure, I like that take, yeah. I, I didn't read the books, I don't know anything about that stuff, but that's the way that I took it. That's a really interesting way to look at it. I hadn't really thought about that because uh, it's funny you said what you said, James, because Anna, with her running commentary throughout the film, did the same thing when she, when she saw this sequence where Bilbo notices that Gollum drops it, and she's like, well, that defeats the purpose is that you know he didn't actually know that it belonged to Gollum when he picked it up. He was just fumbling in the dark. All, all like... I think you guys used like 99% the exact same language. It's a little, <laughs> little scary. Uh, but basically, I thought that was really interesting that like it does kind of deliberately make Bilbo kind of an asshole in this scene uh, in a way that it, it I didn't I don't I didn't really specifically remember that detail from the book from when I read it. But it does really paint him in a very different light. 
But at the same time, if you're looking at it through the lens of, well, it's a corrupting influence, then that kind of, you know, uh, squares the circle, so to speak. So I can kind of see that as an interesting uh, way to look at it. And I kind of like that. But I really like I really like the scene in general because, I mean, as a scene itself, it's really fantastic. I think you get this great dynamic between Martin Freeman and Andy Serkis, which is just, you know, brilliantly performed by the two of them. Both brilliant, fantastic actors, of course, uh, and their elements here. And I think it also serves this purpose that a lot of the film fumbles, and I think, again, the other two films fumble around with, too, of connecting it to The Lord of the Rings. Like, this is all you need. This is all you need to connect to The Lord of the Rings. It's the literal ring, you know, that that, that you're talking about. It's literally Gollum, who is obviously a pivotal character in, in The Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it tells you everything you need to know, you know, in terms of setting up the importance of getting this ring to Bilbo and obviously setting up the ring with Bilbo as it begins with, with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Like this is all the information you need to, to establish it as the prequel and really the importance of how things get to be where they are in the Lord of the Rings more so than the, the council with Gandalf and everything else. Like this really, really is great while also just being a scene that serves the greater purpose of informing Bilbo's character of informing the story of giving Bilbo the ring. And then obviously how that plays out through the rest of, of the Hobbit. Like it's just, it's everything that you'd want out of, you know, what you'd want this to be. And I, and I'm just really impressed with that. Uh, I think, I think my other, my, my more humorous commentary is I feel like this is also a, this is, this is one of the few scenes in the film where they, they really were flexing their CGI prowess because I think there's a, I think there's like a really like close shot of, uh, of Gollum uh, where it's him thinking about his response to one of Bilbo's riddles and it's him just contorting his face and like twitching and like everything at, and it really just felt like a, like a look how fucking good our mocap technology is. <laughs> like, look how good it's it is. Look how good it is. And it's pretty good. It's pretty yeah. good. And it makes, it makes you wonder how they got this so right. I mean, maybe the answer is they did it, you know, from the get go, they knew what they needed to do from the get go and they planned it from day one to day, you know, whatever to make it perfect. But when you put it next to the rest of the CGI work in the in the film that is lackluster, it really it really is very stark difference, you know. Especially because mm-hmm. from this point you have this really really incredible scene, which is one of the greatest. I mean, I think it's one of the best parts of the film. And then you immediately transition to the final kind of sequence in the film, which is Azog and the dwarves, and it's like <laughs> it really ends on more of a sour note than what you just had. I think yeah. overall. I found something really interesting and fun is that Andy Serkis knocked this out within like two weeks and then he stays on as the second unit director. So a lot of the close up shots, there's a shot that you guys will probably remember where Gandalf like sort of looks through the big window in, in bag end and his face is all magnified. Yeah. That shot was he, um, Andy Serkis was the director for that shot. So he was directing a lot of the pickups that they needed to do a lot of the inserts that they needed to make these scenes sort of mesh together. Well, and complete the film. So so I love that Andy Serkis's hands are so heavily on this as well as a director. And he's since gone on to direct other films. And I, I love that Peter Jackson sort of like you can see his his sort of coaching tree when you think of like football. Like yeah. you think of like who comes off of who. <laughs> Andy Serkis is continuing on. Uh, yeah. he's, he's learning all the tricks of the trade so he can make Venom too. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Exactly. Was that his directorial debut? No, because he did no. the uh, he did the Jungle Book one on Netflix. Ah. I think. Uh, okay. Mowgli. Yeah, you're right. Mowgli. Yeah. yeah. So I want to say two things about this scene, and then we can move on because I think you guys have already covered it really well. Um, one, I love the poems that these riddles all are. It's right out of the book. Such clever writing by Tolkien to show two characters who are having a 
back and forth sort of combative interaction without actually being combat. And it just show, like it goes to show how much like unfortunately um, this movie and, and other movies of this time period sometimes fall into the habit of like, well, let's have them pull their swords out and swing them at each other versus something like this where they're having a contest of riddles. Um, which is a weird thing to do, but it's so much more interesting, right? Like, it's such a more memorable scene to have these two characters interact in this way. Um, and, and, you know, I love that each one is its own little poem. And, like, it's, it's very cool. The other thing is that I love seeing Gollum in what I think is, like, his most natural state. Like, this is, um, this is why he looks the way he is. This is why he feeds the way he does. This is the kind of creature that he is who's lived in the darkness of a cave and he has this little lake and he's been eating goblins and fish and all this stuff. And like when we get him later in Lord of the Rings, like to me, it was always this kind of strange uh, person to have if you don't know that this is where he's from. Like he's from this cave. Like this is where he's lived for hundreds of years, it seems like at this point. I always thought this is the best introduction to Gollum is to like go through the Hobbit first and get this introduction. And then you understand the character when you get Lord of the Rings later. Recently, when I was watching Rings of Power, it sort of auto-played Fellowship, and I begrudgingly, you know, let that play. <laughs> let oh, it oh just... darn. What a shame. I'm sure that was really <laughs> upsetting for you. So I let it play, and, and it reminded me, like, early on, there's the scene where they capture Gollum, and he's screaming for, you know, Shire, Baggins, and everything. And, and you know, this, this linking to that is so fun. Yeah. Can we talk about the Goblin King? Yeah, we got to talk about Goblin. Oh, Mr. Uh... Ballsack himself. <laughs> oh no ball sack chin <laughs> I love that Gandalf felt the insult to injury would be to cut that thing before he cut him to kill him I think he cuts him on the stomach not, not the ball, not the chin right I swear that gets I think, cut I think, I think it cuts both I think he does cuts he cut both, both? Okay. I don't remember the order of events but it's definitely both Gandalf is like that nasty thing has to get cut oh man and then he says uh what does he say? Like, sure enough, or something. That'll, well, that'll do, do it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. oh no. what a stupid fucking guy. No. Oh, no. man. It was too, way too much. We needed, like, a scene with them. Too much. Come on. This is the stuff that really is maddening to me. These these long fights where, I mean, these guys, they probably kill 500 goblins in this fight. And, like, how, like you, are, you are setting up a problem that is going to get worse as the movies go on, and it does. Like, they are not a threat anymore. If you've seen the characters kill them by the hundreds without a problem, they're, they're killing them with sticks. They're, you know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and, and then, yeah, the gravity is broken. We're falling down things on, on this bridge, and it's just, like, luckily landing in certain ways so that we're all fine. It reminds me of uh, Pirates of the Caribbean did something like this in one of the sequels that I hated, too. Like, it's just, don't do not do this kind of stuff in your movies. I, it's not good. If I do want to shout out, there's this moment where the ring lands on uh, Bilbo's finger, and, it, and it's a mirror of the way that it lands on Frodo's finger in mm-hmm. Fellowship. And I thought that was pretty cool. I, I don't know if it was necessary, but, like, I like the idea that in both moments, the implication is that the ring is choosing to do that. Like, the ring is manipulating itself enough to, like, land on the finger. That's the way I've always read it. And so I think here it's a, it's a good it's another sign that like the ring has chosen Bilbo here as like a vehicle to get out of this cave where it's been trapped for all these years. It also looks great in 3D, you know. I'm that's sure another selling. <laughs> that was a big did, thing did for anyone, them. Does anyone have any 3D viewing uh, technology at home? Did anyone no, get a chance no. to watch this in 3D? All right, yeah, okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, there's a moment right before this too where he's he's sort of stuck. Bilbo's stuck against the rocks and he like presses through and all his buttons fly off. Oh, right at the camera. Like towards yeah, the screen. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh boy, oh. 3D, man. They were trying to pump up that 3D <laughs> look yeah, for this that's film. That's the sort of thing that'll make you flinch a little bit. Like, oh, yeah. I thought I was going to get hit by a button. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the, the orcs and Azog... You know, and, and yeah, it's it's a it's a long sequence, probably excessive. We do get we do get this showdown between Thorin and Azog, who they've. By the way, in the book, uh, Azog is killed at the battle. That this is something we talked about in our last episode. I actually, yeah, I actually have the the full on lore for it. So Azog the Orc is long dead at the start of the book, only mentioned once as the killer of Thror, Thorin's grandfather, according to the appendices of the Lord of the Rings novels. Azog killed Thoror when the latter had wandered into the orc-infested mines of Moria alone. This led to a nine-year war between dwarves and orcs that culminated in the Battle of Azanul Bizar outside the gates of Moria, where Azog was killed by Thorin's second son, Dane. The movie depicts the battle, but has Azog only losing an arm to Thorin instead of Dane, making him one of the returning villains in this trilogy instead. You know, and like as much as I give him shit for it, honestly, I don't think it's that bad of a change because you're you're bringing in a character in the first movie that you know is going to be important in your Battle of Five Armies, and you're you're making it connect in a way because in the book it's his son or something is who's leading the the orc the orc army in the Battle of Five Armies. Isn't Bulk still in the other movies too, though? I think I feel like he might, he might be. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Remember. We'll find out. I guess we'll find out. I don't. I don't remember. You guys will find out without us because, uh, yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> I mean, we, you're, you can we, you can keep watching you know, if you want. <laughs> I mean, I I gotta say, I'll just say this as an aside right now. Thank you so much for inviting us to be on the first one and not the second <laughs> or the third one because we probably would have had to politely decline. <laughs> I'm uh, sure our, our our next few guests will be stoked to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just appreciate their sacrifice is all I'll say. The Eagles coming in has always felt, both in book and movie, honestly, um, it always feels a little like Deus Ex, Deus Ex Machina for me. It's it's them being saved from this external force. But that is such a thing in the Lord of the Rings in general. Like every time the Eagles show up, they're like that, right? Like they come and save the day out of nowhere. Coming in the clutch. Yeah. I just dislike Gandalf summoning them. I, I would prefer them to be sort of like de- real deus ex machina and just flying by and, and like get an eagle eye view of the battle and say, oh shit, they're burning trees. Let's go down and, and you know, do something about this. We hate orcs. Or we hate goblins, technically. This, this is something that you, you could refresh my memory on. Is there anything along these lines that happens in The Hobbit? Because I, yes. I, okay. Rather than being orcs here, the goblins chase them out with the wargs. And then this this battle does, t- not battle, they get stuck in the trees. They're and then the, they're throwing pine cones. pine cones on fire. And then eagles come and save them. Basically right. also killing orcs or goblins. In, so it's fairly accurate as a overall thing that happens but the minute details are kind of the the the, the, the bigger yeah. changes that get the, made. the biggest change is that thorin decides to strike up grab his sword and roll out to try to fight someone whereas they were sort of cowering in in a corner and there's no way out and the, the you know the point of the scene is out of the frying pan into the fire like thorin deciding to go back and fight just seems silly to me like they needed a like a full circle ending to their film because they decided to end it here. Right, they needed more punchiness almost to to make it feel more f- like a fin- like a finale. And as much as we're we're shitting on this, I I want to give a shout out to what I thought was some good writing here, and I'm pretty sure this is this is added. Um, it's when when 
Bilbo comes out and he's got the ring on and then he reveals that he is actually there. And he says, you know, you don't have a home. It was taken from you because he's talking about the home that he has and how he realizes that they don't have this home. And he says, you know, I, I wouldn't help you take it back if I can. And I thought that was a good moment. And like him and Thorin, their relationship to me is always one of my favorite parts of the book. And the arc of that, how it plays out, and the sort of betrayal um, that that we get in later movies of you know between the two characters, the rift that forms, um, the, there's a tragedy there, and I think they're laying the groundwork here to make that really sell, and and even just make that maybe hit even even harder. Now I'm going to be curious in rewatching the later movies to see if it lands um, as well as I want it to, but I thought it was all pretty good here. We're really setting up this friendship and this bond. Uh, like I said before, the the thing my hang up with this is I thought that part was excellent. I agree with you. The the sort of I you don't have a home. I'll help. I'll help you. Find. That actually reminds me and gives me sort of like the same feeling as Frodo saying, "I will take the ring to Mordor, though I do not do not know the way." That sort of same kind of like, wow, this this really what what people are seeing as an in, insignificant being is willing to to like take on this crazy feat to go fight a dragon to get this home back and we get a great shot of Ian McKellen giving some eyes too when yeah. when both characters say that right but but the thing that that bothers me about this is that bilbo running out to fight orcs and wargs just feels very heroic yes. and then also killing and and that that's the part where I'm like, have him run out and be a distraction, but the killing and actually fighting back against wargs and it just felt like he's he's t- has too much battle prowess at this point for him to be <laughs> like in danger going forward. Now I'm like, oh, you can take an orc. I'm not scared of him fighting the spiders. Eventually, I'm not scared of him coming up against a lot of other things he comes up against that are sort of progressive step stones for him in the book to to build on this bravery no need for bard just get this guy a bow and arrow he'll he'll take smaug down himself yeah <laughs> yep it's true i mean it, there there was this need to like have a big set piece at the end a big action sequence and to give a satisfying finale for the movie and you're talking about the exact problems that creates as you're you're moving the character along his arc too quickly to where now as we enter in the next movie yeah he's 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 too advanced a fighter already you know what the solution to all that is right What's that? Is that you cut half this movie out and then take <laughs> half of the next movie and then put it into one movie and then you yeah. don't have that issue. Have it? Ha, I swear there's a there's an edit by someone. There right? is. Isn't I've there? heard is. I've heard there's this edit where someone made it into like one movie or something and yeah. You know, supposedly it works a lot better. I would be curious to to see that if if that, you know, if that's if that's something we can watch. Another on. bonus episode. I can see it too like there's enough there to I think make a really satisfying edit. So how do we how do we want to end this episode then as we've gotten to the last part of the movie here? Do we do we want to make any judgments? Or are we going to save that to the very final? We should save our judgments and let our guests make judgments. I like that. Here. Yeah. That sounds yeah. good. Yeah. So I guess since uh, uh, Andrew, you have not read the book, I'm not going to make you choose between them, obviously. But I guess I'll have you have you talk about like um, after discussing it and thinking about it. How does this compare to your first watch? Do you feel better about this movie now? Differently? Worse? Where you at with it? I know why I have not remembered certain things. I know why certain things are blotted out. What I can say about this movie is, is I was happy to experience what was largely a, a new experience in Middle Earth. I was excited to return to Middle Earth. It felt to me like Peter Jackson unchained. Like nobody, nobody told him no. 
And <laughs> and so he took advantage of every technological advancement that's happened since he made the original Lord of the Rings and just ran with it. And I think it was charming. Uh, I, I do think that you could have cut a whole lot out and had a better movie. Overall, I think that this film... If you're nostalgic for Lord of the Rings, I think it's a good thing to visit. I think it, I think you can have a lot of fun with it. At the same time, if you hold it to the same standards, I think that you're going to be let down. The The first third of this film was spectacular. I was really happy about it. Um, and I kept holding on to something the entire okay. time I watched it. Colton, you have read the book, but it was a long time ago. So I don't know if you want to try and make a comparison between book and movie or if you prefer to just talk movie. But if you're open to it, uh, maybe make a judgment on what how, how you think it compares to the book overall. Well, I think that my frame of reference is more the concept of the book uh, as opposed to the, the specifics of the book. I will say that I did listen to, to your guys' book coverage, so it helped fill in some gaps. Um, going into recording this, and that was somewhat helpful. And then, obviously, Anna's commentary of being like, "It wasn't like that in the book." <laughs> I was like, "Okay, all right, well, that's helpful too." Now I have more context. So I, you know, I, I, I know what the book, The Hobbit, is. I know what the story is. I know the the style that it's presented in, and you know the way that it's written. And I know how different that is from the Lord of the Rings, which is something that I haven't uh, read. So I at least have the comparison point of The Hobbit to The Hobbit, right? Of of The Hobbit to the Hobbit film trilogy. And what I can say is. I just think that the the film trilogy as a whole misses the mark in terms of really capturing the, the the tone and spirit of the Hobbit books. I think that this one comes the closest to capturing what the what the books spirit was and and the and the sort of fun and and the the children's novel that it, you know the children's book that it was while still also obviously playing with these fantastical concepts and and the land of Middle Earth and its inhabitants and all that. I think that. It's it's still even if it is intended for a younger audience, it's still appealing to a wide audience at the same time. It's not exclusively for children; it just happens to be written for them, um, but not not to the exclusion of others. And, and then Lord of the Rings, I think, is more for adults, perhaps to the exclusion of children because it's a little <laughs> denser, right? Overall, as talking about the trilogy, I think that they they really tried to make it more palatable to wider audiences who knew Lord of the Rings and breathed Lord of the Rings. And I think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake to try to make The Hobbit into The Lord of the Rings because they're just distinct. They're separate things. The riddles and the dark stuff, the Gollum connection, it's all really, really interesting stuff that sets the stage in a really kind of compelling, interesting way as a pseudo prequel to The Lord of the Rings. But I think treating it as an actual prequel was a mistake. And I think that's the, to me, one of the fatal flaws of, of this film past the excesses and the overindulgences and CGI and characters that we didn't need to spend time with and, you know dwarves that fuck and you know <laughs> uh, wizards with bird shit on them and whatnot you know i think that's that's ultimately where i find um uh fault with 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 peter jackson's interpretation of the hobbit is trying to make it lord of the rings zero you know in, in a certain sort of way i just think that that wasn't necessary um you know i think that there's a way to trust your audience and let them appreciate something as different than what it came before. And especially in the context of now, and granted, I haven't seen a single episode of the show, but it feels to me like the Rings of Power almost better fills that void of this is a Lord of the Rings prequel. The Hobbit is like, this is just a story in the world. And it's a story with a different tone and a different, a little bit of a different setting. And Bilbo is not Frodo. And, you know, the dwarves are not the Fellowship of the Ring. Like, it's all, it's all kind of different. And, you know, the adventures with 
encountering trolls and spiders and elves and you know and goblins like it's it's not the Urukai that they're coming up against. It's just it's just a fundamentally different thing. And I think if they respected it like that, I think that that's I think I think that that we would have had a better project. And to tie and I guess bring everything full circle, I, I really do think that's what Del Toro would have done is is bring the sort of the fairy tale elements that I think that would have really set it apart. It would have felt closer to, you know, a children's tale, a children's book that that I think the Hobbit should have been. So I mourn what could have been. That said, I actually do think this first film is fine. I really think it's fine. I think it's just it's just too caught up in trying to do everything. Um, I think that there's a version of even this exact film, not even touching on the sequels, where they just trim 30, 45 minutes. You get it to about a two, two, two hour and 15 minute movie. And I think that it's a pretty tight movie with... Some things that you you know you can't really escape too much of of you know the way that it was made, but I think the story itself would still speak for itself. I think it would override perhaps any you know production issues that you would have with with how it was made. Uh, and so, yes, perhaps watching the extended edition was not the way to go because it it just doubles <laughs> down on the things that I think make it feel so so self indulgent. Um, but even the theatrical cut I think is still still a good half hour too long still a good half hour of, of shit that just is not really super pertinent to telling the story of Bilbo Baggins, to telling the story of this company of dwarves and Thorin and, 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 and everyone else. And Thorin and the 12 other dwarves that, uh, who cares, you know, what <laughs> yeah. they actually do, you know, because they don't really have personalities um, other than what they look like. But I like Balin. Balin's a guy that I like. He, you know, he's, he's the old guy. <laughs> yeah. The old uh, guy has some one- character to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's 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 like three or four that yeah. have a few moments of dialogue and then and then that's, that's about it. it. I think this one's fine. It's fine. Of course the book is better. I think that's probably true nine out of ten times anyway, but I think that um this this one just drifted too far, I think, at times in its quest to be the Lord of the Rings, um, you know, recapturing that magic and, and I think that pursuing a different magic I think would have been the better better trajectory um, overall. But uh, I'm sorry to say, but I think it's all downhill from here for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving it myself. I'm trying, uh, like you said, James, to come into the next one with an open mind. I'm hoping that I can find something to like in these next two movies. The third one's honestly the one I'm most worried about. Because I remember I there was- the shortest, mercifully, so. I remember there was some stuff I liked in The Desolation of Smog, and I'm hoping, you know, I'm excited for next week to watch it now because I think it, I'm going to be interested to see, you know, Smog in general. Yeah. We get to see Smog, yeah. like, for real, and we get to see the interaction of Bilbo and Smog, which we loved in the novel, so. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us for this. Uh, it definitely was an unexpected journey for all of us, um, but I think it's been a fun one. And uh, would would you let our listeners know if they're curious about your podcast, where to find it, and where they can find you on social media? So our website is Um That's our central hub for everything, but we are on social media. On Twitter, we're at WRRPod. Uh, on Instagram, we are uh, at WatchReviewRepeat. And then we're also on Facebook. Um, I don't know the exact link, but if you just search for Watch Review Repeat, you'll find a, a link. And uh, we, we we post everything everywhere. Um, we're, we don't even know what we're doing next. We're, we're coming back from the, hi- the hiatus because I just got married. Um, so, uh, so this is actually our first episode that we're recording uh, in a couple of weeks. So um, describe your episodes a little bit. You tend to have like a main focus movie review, yes. but then you also have the like roundup of news for what's going on in the industry usually at the start 
I remember correctly. Yep. Uh, yeah, that, that that pretty much covers it. Um, Andrew usually uh, tees us up with a fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at the beginning of the episode, related to whatever it is we're covering, which is usually a f- it's it's usually a film or a TV show that's come out recently. Um, and uh, and we, we we try to cover the latest and and what's going on with the news, film and TV side of the house. And then we spend too much time talking about uh, whatever movie or TV show it is, and then and then that's kind of that's kind of how we roll, uh, you know. And with with the usual episode, it, we've we've been a little wonky this year just because we've we've been either you know busy ourselves in our personal lives or uh, struggling to, to 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 make it to the theater to see something. So um, it's been it's been a weird year for us, but um, yeah. We'll, we'll be back on track with something before long. You guys kept it going throughout the pandemic, which was something that, you know, I, I think... Uh, well, the problem is that it spoiled us because we got used to watching things at home and then <laughs> and then suddenly we were returned to the prospect of us having to go to the theater once a week and I was just like, oh, man. <laughs> I, don't, I, I can't make it. I don't want it. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, but it, we, have a, we have a fast and loose kind of podcast. Uh, we usually... It's two best friends just hanging out talking about film and television. I mean, that's what, what I'll say is our conversations often get lengthy and unwieldy. And in fact, if this episode ran over time uh, of what you guys expected it to be, it's because that's what we do. That's what that's 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 what we're known for. But I will say, as long as the episode is shorter than whatever the film it is you're covering, then you've succeeded. And I think we've accomplished that. So I think we're good. Only only the extended edition. <laughs> yeah, Peter. Peter Jackson's a hard one to top. So, <laughs> if you want to, if you want to do another thirty minutes, we can do an extended edition of this podcast too. It's up to you guys. All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, and uh, we will talk to you more in the future. Stay safe uh, from Ian out there, Andrew. Uh, hopefully, you Oof. don't get too much damage. And uh, yeah, it was good talking to you both. <laughs> of course, thank you guys for having us. It's, it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you for having us. If you enjoyed this episode and our coverage of The Hobbit in general, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash ink to film. And that's where you'll find those bonus episodes we've been talking about. Also connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those at ink to film. We're also on TikTok and Goodreads and all other social media platforms. So look for us and we're probably there. All right. So next week we will have Kate Ristow on to talk to- with us about the desolation of smaug uh hopefully you join us for that we will bring in these different viewpoints each week to keep it fresh to keep it interesting to keep it fun and uh until next time keep adapting Three.